Moralia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Morelia Python Radio. And tonight we are doing a review of a new uh, research paper on nidovirus that was released. Um, and it is by doctors Laura Hoon Hanks and Mark uh, Steingland. Um, and tonight they're going to be on along with Cody and Pia. Um, and we're going we're gonna to break it down and talk all about it. Um, what's up, Owen? How you been? <clears throat> eh, we're doing all right over here. Um, but, uh, obviously this is going to be one of those shows that, uh, it, I, I know it's a topic that kind of, everybody kind of wants to, um, either stop discussing or kind of move away from, but it's going to be one of those things that we kind of want to get the show and we want to review the paper. Uh, I read the paper, you read the paper. It's very good. Um, scientific paper. So I think it's one of those things that everybody who is going to be a uh, Python keeper or breeder should kind of have in their repertoire and uh, review. So we'll obviously make the paper available for you guys uh, on the uh, MPR Facebook page, as well as on the chat discussion group. So, yeah. Yeah. And there's a link to it in the uh, show notes and also Mm -hmm. uh, put it on the blog. But the paper is actually titled Respiratory Disease in Ball Pythons, Python Regis, Experimentally Infected with Ball Python Nidovirus. So, um, wow, man, that was a tough read for (laughs) sure. I don't know how you felt, but when I was reading it, I was like, this to be, may be above to be my honest, pay grade. <laughs> to be honest, it, it it gave me like little subtle flashbacks to college, and I was like, all right, this is, yeah, this is how you set up one of these papers. And then also, uh, when I was working at Penn, it was kind of like the like, I almost could like envision the the setups and everything like that. So that was really cool, and uh, enjoyed that aspect of it, not the okay. what I was reading <laughs> and that uh, the repercussions of it, but the scientific thing. I I always liked that, but. Um, yeah, it does feel like I uh, I don't have the uh, um, the level of smarts to do this. So you know, it's one of those things. <laughs> yeah. So uh, well, yeah. The, so GTP Keeper Radio did uh, two episodes on nidovirus, and the last one that they did with Justin Julander and uh, mm. P and Cody was. Um, was a really good episode and, and they hit on a lot of stuff and um, uh, hopefully our approach to it is going to be slightly different only because we have this paper that we're talking about. And, you know, I really wanted to talk about quarantine and cleaning best practices, et cetera, to give, you know, the listeners something that they can, you know, apply uh, because it seems that uh, it may help with the, uh, you know, the spread of it through your collection, if you were to happen to have it. So, um, right. So we got that, but, um, before we do that, we're going to click Ian on and we're going to have him, uh, just give us a quick update on Southeast carpet. Fest. So hold on a sec. He's got, he's got a minute. He has a minute. He better start. He better hit the ground running. Are you running Ian? All right. I'm <laughs> running. Be. Owen. I'm running. <laughs> <as fast laughs> you, you better be. 
How are you guys doing tonight? He's so warm. Yeah, yeah, he's so warm right. and welcoming, isn't he? I am. I am a delight. <laughs> Don't you ever tell anybody else otherwise. God. I want you to know I'm not warm and welcoming because I'm actually in New Jersey right now, so I'm north of you guys, and it is warm for New Jersey standards, but 46 degrees is still cold for Florida. Really? It was yeah, I was going to say, today, today was really, was really nice. <laughs> I loved it. Beautiful day. <laughs> I don't know, Once it was the rain over yeah. <laughs> It's normal. Yeah, Get used to it. Yeah. After the rain one, it's perfect for spray breeding yeah, was, snakes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'll take rain over snow and ice and sleet any day, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm up in New Jersey. I actually just left John Martin's place checking out his collection and I uh, stopped by and saw Keith McPeak last night, so I've got nice. a whole new round of some cool pictures to post when uh, when I have a chance, and uh, definitely checking out some cool collections and spending some time with some cool keepers, so shout out to both those guys. Nice. Owen, so, notice uh, that he's over here on the East Coast and the Northeast, but he didn't come to see either one of us. I'm I, I wasn't going to say anything, <laughs> but if you're going to... If you're going to do that, this is like the second time he's whipped through, and he's like, Keith McPeak's place. Oh, oh, okay. So, yeah. That don't, that's not wasted on him. Yeah. He doesn't, well, he doesn't want to associate maybe when it's with warmer, I'll carpet. Make... Don't want to see it. Yeah. <laughs> it's enough. Maybe when it's warmer, I'll make it to the Philly area. Oh, okay. Hopefully for North yeah. Carolina. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. When you get time for us. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, wow, let's talk that's, carpet. There's not a lot of love here tonight, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk Carpet Fest. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, let's talk Carpet Fest. So, Southeast Carpet Fest. Um, for those of you who listened last week, Dave Palumbo was on. And just one small correction I think he slipped up and said that Carpet Fest was on February 9th. That would be a Friday. <laughs> it is not. It is on Saturday, February 10th. So, I just want to make sure to clarify that for everybody. If you are planning on coming to Carpet Fest, it is Saturday, February 10th, not Friday. Okay. All right. So, um, but things are coming together. We just wrapped up our shirt campaign. Uh, we sold 90 shirts in two weeks and raised $1,100 for US Arc. So, a big awesome. thank you to everybody who participated in the T-shirt campaign. It was we kind of got it together last minute, and I didn't think we'd even hit our goal of 50 in two weeks, and we almost doubled it. So thank you to everybody out there in the community who supported us and supported us arc by buying a t-shirt. Those should be shipping out probably in about a week or two. Awesome. And um, so now we're, we're really kicking in things into high gear as far as the planning for the event. Um, The one thing is if you are planning on coming to Southeast carpet fest, please, please, please go to the Facebook event page and RSVP Right now we have, I think, around 24 people RSVP'd and like 90 people are interested. So I really need those people that are interested to RSVP, yes, if you plan on coming. So we make sure we've got enough food and drink and chairs and everything else. Um, so I just encourage you if, you, if you are planning on coming, please, please RSVP. And also, if you are coming, please reach out and contact either Dave Palumbo or myself and make sure you are bringing something. Even if you're coming from out of town, you can stop and pick up a bag of ice or some appetizers or dessert or something. But if you're coming, that's, that's the admission to get in is you got you to gotta bring something. Cool. Okay. I'll, uh, have you guys been enjoying the planning process or uh, are you just <laughs> going to be happy when it's over? 
I will be happy when it's over, Owen. It will be there the first time I will say I am just like Owen, and I'm so glad the carpet <laughs> trust is over. There you go. Not many people can uh, say that. So <laughs> that's true. That's true. I, I don't know how I landed on the Southeast Carpet Fest planning committee, but um, it's a labor of love and it's like herding cats every single day. So um, we do have a, a good group of people that are helping and, you know, it takes a village. So thank you to everyone that is contributing. But yes, I will be happy when it's over, Owen. There you go. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. hopefully not too happy that you guys don't try to repeat next year. But, you know, we understand the uh, decompression phase from a carpet fest. To trust, trust <laughs> us, we, we know. So yes. All too well. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to just quickly mention um, is the auction that we are going to have at Southeast Carpet Fest. So we have actually had an unbelievable outpouring of support, people donating things for the auction. Um, the auction, for those of you who are not familiar, just like other Carpet Fest, it will also benefit U.S. ARC. And our intention is to host it kind of like an online auction. So we will be posting items up hopefully later this week. So those of you in other parts of the country that want to support us that can't make it to Carpet Fest, you'll still be able to bid on items online. And I think the way it'll work is that the auction will end at Carpet Fest so that if you win it and you're there, you can take the item with you. Um, otherwise, we'll make arrangements to get it shipped to you. But I do want to just kind of give a, a shout out to some of the people that have donated and, and let you guys know some of the, the awesome stuff that's going to be available. So um, this is not by any means a complete list. It's just a partial list. And so just kind of a teaser. Um, Justin Julander and Terry Phillips are donating two copies of their new Green Tree Python book. Um, Howard nice. Redding is... Howard Redding is donating a $200 voucher. Um, E.B. Morelia is donating a $200 voucher. Nobody uh, likes that. Tracy, <laughs> Tracy Harden <laughs> is donating a male Bredeli python. Um, Nick Mutton is donating a male Xanthic Jag Coastal. Um, myself at S&J Reptiles, we're donating a $200 voucher. Pia and Cody Bartoloni are donating a croc print and St. Augustine alligator farm tickets. Um, Nick at Reptilinks is sending some, a, a whole kind of kit of Reptilinks swag, including some shirts and hoodies. Uh, Chris Chappelle at Herptastic is donating a $100 cage rack voucher. Mice Direct is donating a $25 voucher towards the purchase of rodents. Um, Bill Stiegel is donating a $500 voucher. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Owen McIntyre, Rogue Reptiles. That's this guy. Yeah. Voucher. <laughs> uh, Triple B Reptiles is donating a $300 voucher. Uh, Ralph Polinski is donating a $500 voucher. Um, Triple L mm -hmm. Reptiles is sending us a whole bunch of stuff for the event, including three or four different books. Um, and the list just kind of goes on and on from there. So that's just a preview. I think we're going to have an awesome auction, and we're hoping to raise a lot of money for U.S. ARC and maybe set a new record for funds raised at a carpet fest. Nice. <clears throat> that's awesome. That sounds like a pretty yeah, sweet list, man. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's more stuff coming. Um, I think that there's something coming from Sea Serpents. I think uh, – I heard that Gourmet Rodent was donating something. I believe Zoomed is sending us stuff. So we've really got a lot of good stuff coming. 
I think Forrest Fanning and Levi Cranston from Cold-Blooded Cafe is sending uh, a voucher. So we've got a lot of stuff coming in for the auction. I think it's going to be pretty awesome. And uh, hopefully we're going to kick off Southeast Carpet Fest this year and uh, set a new record. So we're excited. Awesome. Very, Very cool. cool. Yep. And I hear it's possible, Eric, even you're going to make it down for Carpet Fest, huh? You son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's going to make Owen look bad. Last week. <laughs> and I thought, I thought we had discussed that I was uh, – no, you're not going to fight later. All right. Nope, I'll save this for later. <laughs> Off-air discussions will happen. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's, it's like, it's, 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 it's one of those weird things like, uh, because of my current status and the job and building a supermarket <laughs> and whatnot, it's like, it floats from, you know, sometimes I, like this weekend I'll be off cause I'm coming to visit you. Owen, yeah. But that is true. Know, yeah. So oh, next weekend's weekend, not, but all right. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Well, hopefully we'll see. Uh, fingers you crossed. Guys. Yeah. Yep. Well, We've got representation from GTP Keeper Radio, so don't let those guys show you up. We need somebody from NPR representing. Listen, we send them out first, and when they report that it was a good carpet fest, then the following year we'll consider, you know, sending the A group. You got to get past they're like the gatekeepers. So you yeah, know, plus, you know, it's nice. like that thing. You can't have uh, you can't have both of them because if God forbid something happens at carpet fest, exactly, then, you know, Morelia Radio is over. <laughs> <laughs> Northeast Carpet Fest are so dangerous, especially when I don't think that GTP I don't think that, years here. Yeah, I don't think that Buddy and Owen would have the same dynamic. <laughs> no, no, it would be horrible. No, just be horrible. It would not go well. Yeah, Owen, let's not. I do really that. like these Condros. I hate them. They suck. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna, I wanna argue, but but I can't. <laughs> so this, yeah. that's pretty much how it would go. So. <laughs> Uh, well, awesome. that's awesome. Well, I just, you know, big shout out to everyone that's helping put it together. Uh, looking forward to seeing everyone in a couple weeks. If you're coming, RSVP, message me so you can bring something. And also reach out because I think we're going to try to do a Friday night dinner as well at one of the local restaurants. So should be a good time. It does, you don't have to be a carpet keeper. You don't even have to be a snake keeper. Just come hang out, meet everybody, and uh, have a good time at Southeast Carpet Fest, February 10th at uh, Dave Palumbo's place, Palumbo's Pythons and Boas. Nice. Awesome. Sounds good. All right, guys. Have a good show. Right. I'll talk to you later. All right. All right. You Thanks, too. Ian. Bye, guys. Okay. All right. So, Owen, I'm going to try to... Um, all right. See How do you want to do this? here? Uh, <laughs> I got a hey, bunch you of got, you're, you're in the driver's seat. You go. I'm just going to sit here and watch. So. Yeah, you can't watch. I know. All right. Fine. Um, so, okay. Let's see. I'm thinking that uh, maybe we don't have anybody yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I could be... <laughs> Ah crap! <laughs> <laughs> Do we not have any of the numbers that was uh, listed on the thing? So we have to. Yeah, I have the numbers, but the yeah. Oh, they those are, are the people the... waiting. Never Wait. mind. They they do hear us. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Never mind. 
<laughs> we're totally screwed. You know what it is? I got this new microphone, so it's like I have to. Yeah, and it's distracting away, you. So it's like really screw me up. <laughs> you don't know which way is left and right, and oh yeah, this is this is a perfect time to break out the new um uh, the new hardware. Is th- this show? Great, yeah, good call. Of all by shows, us. right? Yeah. So <laughs> I believe this is Pia. Pia, is this you? Uh, and maybe Cody. Oh, Cody. Oh, that's right. You guys hey. flipped phones. <laughs> yeah, we, that'll work. Right? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, we we switched phones because uh, my phone doesn't have a headset, so it's pretty pretty hard to hear on that one. So Pia's got that one plugged into the uh, car phone, so she's um, outside in the car office, and uh, I've I've got her phone. So okay, so I believe she's so, live so, too, right? Yep. Yeah, I'm here. Can you guys hear me? Nice. Yep. Yes, yes, we can. Awesome. All right, so how are you guys doing? Doing good. <laughs> a little tired, yeah, doing but we're well. good. Oh, yeah, you had a long had a trip, right? Busy, yeah, we had a, a busy week, so it's been good. Now we're finally home and got all the animals settled and got the dog and all that all that good jazz. So. Uh, wow, yeah, what better way I'm, to spend <laughs> and yeah, talking with I'm, us I'm here? <laughs> no, I'm exhausted, and we haven't even. Uh, Pia said that we're caught up in animal work. We're not even. We haven't even touched it yet, other than going and pick, picking up our German Shepherd from from the the, the boarding kennel. Um, so tomorrow, uh, tomorrow is going to be a long day getting everybody caught up to speed. But when we go on these kind of trips, the nice thing about reptiles is they're pretty forgiving. Um, you know, uh, you you don't have to do a whole lot, of, especially with snakes and. We'll just cut off food week or two prior, just depending on on what what needs to be fed and whatnot. Maybe some some youngsters will get a meal, but uh, larger stuff won't get anything, and so they're all cleaned out. And um, you know, I may put multiple uh, containers of water in the in the enclosure, so they you know if they defecate in one, they'll still have clean water in another. And we when we got back, we gave everybody a quick run through and. Nobody looks worse for wear, still clean water bowls, and everything looks good. So it doesn't look like I'm going to be doing, you know, too much. So Awesome. Awesome, awesome. So, so I think we have Laura, too, right? Can you hear us? Uh, yep, that's Laura. Oh, there you Hello. Welcome. How you doing? Hey. <laughs> Excellent. How about you guys? Uh, doing great. And doing good. So far, we haven't ruined the there. show yet. So we're doing okay. Not All yet. Right, so Give us another minute. Maybe, maybe do you, I guess we'll start with, uh, I don't see Mark though on there. He was nine, seven. All right. but uh, so, so, so why don't, um, Cody and Pia, why don't you give us a kind of quick brief overview of, uh, your guys, uh, collection, what you guys are doing, what you guys are working with. Um, and, uh, kind of a little bit, uh, touch a little bit on the NIDO, um, stuff that you guys have had to, kind of combat and uh we'll go from there awesome pia do you want to take the this one or you want me to take it i was like you can you, you got it baby okay. all right um i'll at least touch on what we're kind of working with in the collection and i'll let pia run with the nido stuff um but uh in our collection we we primarily work with a lot of venomous species um currently we have uh we have every species of mamba represented in the collection we actually have a 
one of our pairs of West African green mambas breeding as I'm, I'm talking to you guys. I'm only like 10 feet away from that, their enclosure. That's cool. That is cool. <laughs> yeah. They're awesome, man. And uh, I, I paired them up maybe about a week or so ago. Um, we get a lot of rainstorms uh, coming through Florida, as you can imagine. So every time that barometric pressure changes and we get a rainstorm, you know, I have my pairings on what I know I want to throw together. And, um, you know, I'll just throw them together and pull it. You know, if I don't see anything um, interesting, I'll pull them apart, you know, put them back together and just kind of wait for you know, the magic to happen. And, and these guys have been together for about a week. And uh, we got back today um, after running errands and, and stuff. And we heard a bunch of rustling in the leaf litter. And it's like, well, that kind of sounds promising. So they were they were locked up. And, and that's always a good time. And um, and uh, so, yes, yeah, so we have all the, all the species of mambas. Um, we have uh, – we work with a lot of different species of palm vipers. We have some, some pretty pretty rare ones. Um, we're working with yellow blotch palm vipers, uh, Guatemalan palm vipers, of course, your eyelash vipers. Um, we have Sri Lankan palm vipers and uh, basically venomous chondros, you know. And and uh, so uh, th- those are kind of, um, you know, are, are, I, it's hard to pick a favorite, you know how that goes, but uh, we really yeah, like yeah. Our, our palm vipers. Um and uh, we have a lot of elapids in the in the collection, so you know all your uh, everything that's a cobra, mamba, uh, crate coral snake, you know those kind of things in the in the family. We have a lot of different species of um, of cobras, which ironically I'm not I'm not the biggest fan of cobras, and we have a lot of them. Um, you know, we just have some real rare ones, and every time I work with them, and we have um, pure Naya Philippinensis, which are the northern um, Philippine cobras, and they're they're incredibly rare in private collections and, and new collections. And these are probably the meanest snakes on earth. Uh, every single time you open the enclosure, I mean, this if you are not watching what you're these things will absolutely try to kill you. So uh, and that's they, always and, fun. Uh, yeah, and they are. So from my understanding, you know, uh, they are the most uh, toxic groups. So in the, in the true cobras, uh, their their venom it has the highest toxicity. So, um, you know, and I think that's based on your LD50s. Uh, basically, they, um, uh, they will inject a, a certain amount of venom into rodents and whatever the uh, 50% of that dies in that time frame. They get their LD50, and it's a lot more scientific than that but that's just the you know the, the quick version of that but those those philippine cobras they're just a nightmare and every single time i work with them i, I wonder why we have them and then i'm like and then hmm. i think well if i got rid of them then i would be trying to find them again so we may as well just keep them and understandable uh, right and uh, so we've got some death adders and Man, there's just so much. That's that's why we put together a website, uh, www.terrestrialandarboreal.com. Not everything is on there, um, but when people ask us what we keep, it's it's pretty nice just to say, hey, go to the go to the go website. There. You can browse. Yeah, there's, there's you know, I try to keep brief descriptions of everything because um, you know I don't I don't talk in brief descriptions, and um, you know people don't like to read anymore and you know you if it, if it takes too many mental calories to process what somebody's trying to say then 
people get bored and kind of wander off. So I, I try to keep it short and sweet and interesting. Um, but we do work with some really cool uh, forest pit vipers. We have the speckled forest pit vipers, Bosriopsis taniata, and um, the uh, two-line forest pit vipers, uh, Bosriopsis bilineata. And uh, we were actually lucky enough to produce um, the two-line forest pit vipers last year. We actually only produced one. They bred on May 4th in 2017. And um, female looked enormous. She was big, bloated, like everything that you would, you, you know, you'd think that she was going to spew out a pile of babies. And we got back from, I think it was Germany, actually. We went to the, the ham reptile uh, expo in Germany. And I didn't think she was going to be due for a few more weeks. And we got back, and I saw three unfertilized ova just kind of floating around in the leaf litter and mm-hmm. um, kind, of, kind of started digging through with a snake hook. And there was just, I thought it was dead at first. I thought it was a stillborn, but just a small little curled up, you know, two-line pit viper. And... Uh, started spraying it down with some water and it lapped up the beads of water and um and we still have that animal it it, it, it pulled through it actually was really good when we first saw it it, it just kind of looked it looked dead but it was just curled up and but it was kind of bizarre because with how big that snake was that produced you would expect some like you know they give birth to live you know i was expecting to see some stillborns or something but just three little unfertilized dove and nothing remarkable and one live born so we're just calling this one Uno because he was the only one that was produced and uh, he's super cool. But those guys are, we actually don't have those on the website, but if you check out our Facebook page, the um, terrestrial and arboreal Facebook page, there's a uh, post of that animal on there. So those are pretty cool. We have a lot of neat stuff and it's, it's kind of hard to, to mention. Well, aside all. Um, aside I, from the venomous, aside from the venomous, what else do you guys work with? Well, we we did work with Morella. We had a lot of carpet pythons and condor pythons, and then uh, <laughs> we don't we don't have right. so many of those anymore. Um, you know, we uh, we had some real, we had inland we had uh, inland carpets. Uh, you know, the Macafi. We had uh, a really nice group of uh, Tully uh, locality jungles that came from Nick Mutton. Um, mm-hmm. We had we had uh, Palmerston jungles um, and. Uh, uh, the Rockhampton Coastals, which are super cool. I think you might have a pair of those. Ian, or, uh, uh, Owen, Eric, Eric, Ian. Eric does. Eric does. I do, okay. I, okay. Uh, I do not have any co- coastal localities, which is a horrible, horrible sin that I will eventually yes. come to terms with in my life. But for right now, I'm good. But, uh, yeah, that, <laughs> that is uh, one of those things. Yeah, I thought, I thought you were the coastal guy, man. I what am. I that? am. But <laughs> Eric's got it all. I just lived through him. <laughs> So, you know, that's just how it goes. Um, yeah, the, no, they're, they're, uh, cool. they're cool, though, huh, Eric? They, they got that really neat pattern on the head. I really like the Rockhampton. Oh, yeah, cool snakes um, for sure. Yeah, man. We, so, I mean, um, and then, of course, Condros. We had uh, we had a few different localities, you know, your, your Beox and Cyclops and Aroos and all that stuff and, and quite a few designers. Um and uh, and yeah, I mean, we would we've been keeping uh, well, of course, rust scale pythons. That was those were actually the first pair of snakes that P and I bought when we got together in 2012 was a pair of rust scale pythons, and of course, raised those suckers up, uh, you know, yeah. to adults, and and you're just right around the corner from breeding them, 
and uh, and then we lost both of those to Nidovirus oh. when we when we brought when we brought in that Green Street Python collection. So we when we moved back from Arizona, um, we bought a, a Green Tree Python collection. We're not going to mention who it came from or all that stuff. It doesn't matter. But uh, we we got it from you know how you you, you know you get stuff from from friends and you know mm-hmm. you still and it's uh, people that you trust and people that have had the animals for a long time and with when it comes to stuff like designer chondros you think that these these guys are just on their a game with quarantine and they're doing you know you know they're not dealing with wild caught stuff and this is going to be you know like you don't really think that you're going to be facing disease like this especially yeah. in something like a designer chondro so when we moved back to our house in florida we did the best we could with quarantine because we were coming back with our collection uh which was pretty large and everything was uh, separated into different rooms and uh you know we actually live in our facility and by by saying we live in our facility it's not like we have a couple of cages or snake racks it's we have a bedroom and we have our bed in that and then every other room is just enclosures snake racks there's absolutely no furniture we do have a hmm. kitchen table but it is like you know it's 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 awesome and it's not at the same time it's mm-hmm. awesome because i am really good i am really good at breeding snakes and it is because at two o'clock in the morning when a crash of thunder wakes me up and i know what i want to throw together i run out there and i start throwing stuff together where if a, you know, we, once we have our buildings and stuff up, I might not be so inclined to run outside to go throw stuff together in the middle of the night. So it's I could observe everything all the time, and you, I really get to see what, uh, you know, normal behavior and what things are looking like all the time. So when the animal's head's turned a, a different way, I'm paying attention to that. So that's a plus. Um, but some, some downfalls to that is um, everything is in the same building, which... You know, most mm-hmm. most places. If you if you have a facility, everything's in the same building too. Of course, you, you might you might be lucky enough to have a quarantine facility that's separated from the rest of the building, or maybe has separate airflow. But it might just be another room where new acquisitions go in and wait out their quarantine period, but may may still share the same airflow. You know, so if you're dealing with something that could be aerosolized or airborne, that that's something that you have to consider. But when we brought in this Green Tree Python group. Um, we worked it separate from everything else, um, and we, uh, you know, w- cleaned our utensils, cleaned transfer containers. Um, I don't, we don't wear gloves. I just wash my hands in between. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes we do if we're doing a certain procedure, but it is such a pain in the ass. That, I mean, you know when you put on gloves and you start sweating, how hard it is to start putting on a different pair of gloves. It sucks. So... Yeah, um, you know, you know, I'd rather just go wash my hands between animals um, or questionable animals. I might work a whole rack and then go wash my hands, or if, if I'm working something and it urates on me or defecates or something, then go wash your hands. Um, you know, kind of thing. You just kind of use practical common sense while you're doing it. I mean, it's not really rocket science, um, but uh, we we worked everything separately and. Once we brought in this collection, um, you know, uh, we within the first two to three weeks is when we we started really seeing um, 
animals come down with clinical signs of, um, you know, respiratory um, symptoms and, and the wheezing and the bubbling and the, the caseous discharge around the mouth and, and uh, which was followed quickly by death and at an alarming rate. We lost a couple green tree pythons uh, from that group and then an animal that we produced ourselves um, that was maybe a two or three year old uh, green tree python. And then from there, the carpet pythons that were in a completely different area, they got hit the hardest, more so than the green trees, because I, I, I think, and I think we think that, you know, they were just naive to that, whatever strain of nidovirus that was coming mm-hmm. from a different collection where, where the animals uh, themselves that we got that, that brought in this nidovirus were maybe more, um, you know, uh, resistant to it, to where it wasn't, it wasn't knocking them out, you know, like, like these ones. And I mean, I was opening, you know, I would, I would feed on a Monday and I would open on a, you know, open that uh, tub or cage on a Wednesday and there was, you know, three dead carpet pythons in the rack that we raised from babies that had no health problems the whole time that we had them. And uh, so just absolutely no warning that, uh, you know, they had no respiratory problems or anything like that, uh, Mm -hmm. all the way up to animals that uh, presented themselves with respiratory symptoms and um, just lingered and lingered and lingered. And, um, you know, they, they responded to antibiotic treatment and, um, you know, got back in the game and started feeding and everything, but still have nidovirus. And, 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 and Mark and Laura could really go into detail about a lot of that stuff. But, you know, this is just kind of what, what we experienced there. So I'm going to just come up for air and just let everybody <laughs> you know, catch their breath and <laughs> say, what, say whatever they want to say mm-hmm. here. Well, uh, I know Pia, you you wanted to weigh in on like what what you guys did. And I know uh, you, uh, your your background is in um, the zoo field, correct? Yeah. So my background is um, as a veterinary technician, uh, specializing mm-hmm. in exotics and zoo kind of animals. Um, so I mean, I think a couple of things that Cody forgot that I was going to add in is one of the other species we have are diamond pythons too, which are also pretty cool. Um, and then we got mm-hmm. those as a wedding gift from our, our friends, Forrest and Des, who we visited um, in Indiana. But anyways, um, so for me, I was working at the University of Florida, um, and that's kind of also how I got into touch with Mark and Laura. Um, but, yeah, so my background's veterinary, and that's kind of, I think, why Cody and I are such a good team is I'm kind of the, the veterinary side, and he's the husbandry and breeding side. So we're kind of a good a good match that way. But, but okay. yeah. So. Perfect. Well, we actually, we met, well, I was, when I was working at the alligator farm, I, I have a zoo background too, but it's in herpetology, not the veterinary side. And I worked at the St. Augustine Alligator Farm Zoological Park from 2010 to 2015. And I was the guy in charge of the veterinary liaison for our reptile department. And um, every two weeks, the University of Florida would come down, uh, the, the zoo med uh, team would come down and we'd put animals that needed to be seen on the vet list down and and what have you and um so i was kind of heading all that stuff up and that's basically where pia and i met and and, you know the rest is just history there i'm not gonna bore everybody to death with that but um but yeah so it uh it definitely works out yeah with uh with having someone like pia um 
you know, to, to help you out because it, uh, it really is, you know, as you guys know, when you guys have a, a sick animal or something, it takes multiple pairs of hands and you have to tell everybody what to do and how to, you know, manage the stuff. And P and I never, we barely even have to talk to each other when we're doing procedures. We just have it down to a science. And, you know, it's basically like, you know, move, move the animal's head this way or that way. And that's, that's all we have to do when we're working together. So it's pretty nice. It was pretty obvious that something was kind of a little bit more than just simple respiratory infections here pretty quickly for you guys, right? Yeah, absolutely. Cause, uh, I mean, when we first got the collection and we had them, you know, in quarantine or in living room, um, and then we started seeing clinical signs within three weeks, and we're like, well, you know, it could just be stress of the move and things like that. But, you know, in my experience in the veterinary side, seeing a snake with a respiratory, you know, signs and then dying within a week was very severe. And then we had multiple yeah. deaths after that. And once we had two to three, um, you know, with clinical signs, kind of without clinical signs, it, it, to me, I was like, Oh gosh, red flag, there is something going on. And, you know, we need to, we need to figure this out. Um, and so we sent two, the first two animals that died, we sent for necropsy at our state lab here in Florida um, and they weren't able to figure out what it was, but they said it was something viral. And then, um, you know, I've, it w- I got to send some samples and stuff to Mark and Laura, so I kind of had an idea of what nidovirus was, and it was this kind of respiratory virus. And, and I talked to uh, uh, Jim Wellahan at the University of Florida. Um, he's one of our good friends, and he kind of said, you know, we need to test for this and this. And um, mm. also the animals that were showing clinical signs, um, we didn't just willy-nilly just send, give them antibiotics like, you know, Right. Tell people not to do. We did. Um, we did lung washes uh, for culture sensitivity and cytology on um, the animals that were showing clinical signs. I think at that point we had about five animals um, that were alive and showing clinical signs, um, and then we started treating them with uh, antibiotics that were sensitive to the bacteria that we were finding. Um, okay. And then during this time as well. Um, I had the lab, the state lab that we sent the first initial uh, necropsies to to send tissues to the University of Florida to get testing for uh, IBD uh, and and nidovirus, which are the two kind of high end or the higher likelihood viruses that we were thinking. Um, and then you know if it wasn't one of those, then we would go to you know some of the other viruses and things that we could could try to test for. Um, and it was in fact nidovirus, and that's kind of when I contacted Mark and Laura and asked if they were still working on their research project because we, we thought we had a pretty a pretty large collection that were affected and or are being affected. So that's kind of how we got into touch with them. Okay. Um, I do want to, uh, Laura, if you could kind of, Dr. Laura, I, if, I, if that's how you want to do it, I don't know how. Um, <laughs> either one, if you want to weigh in on, uh, some people like it, um, if you want to weigh in on kind of give a, your background, kind of what you're doing, and uh, some of the research that you've been kind of up to, and then we'll uh, we'll have Mark jump in as well. Yeah, so um, I am a veterinarian, and I actually just finished up a residency in anatomic pathology. So okay. I'm kind of on the diagnostic side where I do necropsies and biopsies, and um, and so part of our program is also combined with a PhD. So my PhD project is really taking this nidovirus project, which started with Mark, um, and uh, taking it kind of to the next level and expanding out um, by doing experimental infections in order to assess um, the actual progression of disease and that this virus is truly associated with respiratory disease. And then with the help of P. 
Pia and Cody, as well as a number of other collections, we're starting to investigate kind of the epidemiology of this disease and what species are susceptible, how many snake species can get it, um, how infection really correlates with disease. So are some snake species more likely to get disease and die rather than just kind of be carriers and spread it to others? Uh, so that's kind of the project, uh, at least where we have it right now. And a lot of that is thanks to Pia and Cody being willing to um, send us samples and get us other samples from other collections and really give us a lot of really important data from their collection as far as who's sick, when they got um, nidovirus, uh, if they've cleared nidovirus, all those kind of, kinds of things. And since Pia is a veterinarian, um, she obviously gets us that clinical aspect as well, which has been really essential. That's awesome. So you're kind of taking it and running with it and seeing how far you can kind of take this from uh, from the, I guess, from the get-go, from the start of this whole thing to uh, hopefully some sort of result. Uh, that That's awesome. So, very cool. Uh, Mark, I'm not sure if we, if, if you can hear me. Um, Eric did not check on that. Yeah, he's good. Damn it. Uh, Mark? <laughs> yeah. He, oh, wait. No. I'm sorry. He's damn good. it, Eric. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I hate you so much. Anyway, Mark, can you hear me now? <laughs> yes, I can. Can you hear me? <laughs> All right. Yes, we can now. Um, okay, Mark, good. if you could um, just kind of throw out what, what uh, your background as well as what you've been doing when it comes to this uh, nidovirus stuff. Sure. So I actually, um, it's the, you know, I got into sort of reptile disease and infectious diseases sort of inadvertently. Mm-hmm. Um, I started off studying uh viruses in general during my PhD, but I actually was uh, working on HIV and other viruses like that. Um, But then when I switched after I completed my PhD, so I'm not a veterinarian, I'm just a straight PhD scientist. And uh, after I finished my PhD, I went to to a lab where I was working and learning how to discover new viruses. We called it virus hunting. So we were basically looking, uh, when there was infectious diseases, where it seemed like they might be caused by a virus, but nobody knew what the virus was, we were trying to figure out if we could solve the the mystery and figure out what what kind of virus it actually was. So um, I worked on a bunch of projects, and, you know, most of the time we would look, but we wouldn't find anything, and, you know, it's slightly discouraging. But one of the – some of the more successful projects that I worked on and that I continue to work on involved reptile diseases. And – Actually, my entry into sort of the reptile infectious disease field was uh, with IBD. So when I was in California uh, working in a lab there as a postdoc uh, researcher, I actually discovered arenaviruses, and now we've gone on to go on to show that those are actually the cause of IBD uh, in boas and pythons. So that was sort of the first entry into um, reptile diseases, and so... Uh, we've made some good progress on that, but then the the whole IBD and uh, arenavirus um, project sort of gave gave our research visibility to sort of the the exotic veterinarians and the broader reptile community. And one of the key connections there was through Elliot Jacobson at the University of Florida, who, as you know, is literally the, the person who literally wrote the textbook on reptile infectious mm-hmm. diseases. So he he was a really he's been a he was sort of retiring right at the same time that I was moving to, to Colorado State University to start my own lab, where, which is where I am now. And he, he um, you know, he's been really 
really generous in making connections and in sharing resources with our labs. And so he's actually how we got in touch with Pia originally and Cody. And um, he is sort of the person who really kind of gave us the first samples that, that led to the discovery of these nidoviruses back in 2014 or 2014. And so, um, and we actually first found nidoviruses in ball pythons and mm-hmm. uh, we call those ball python nidovirus. And um, it's sort of later as we've gotten more samples from other python species that we've begun to realize that it's, it's a disease, not just the ball pythons, but of many different python species. And so, um, you know, I was, after I came to Colorado State, I was lucky enough to have Laura join my lab. And, and unlike me, she actually is a veterinarian. So, hmm. you know, she actually knows the proper terminology. And, she would, you know, if you cut open a snake, she knows what the all the tissues are. And I, when I look at it, I just don't know. So just like, you know, Cody and Pia sound like a good team. It's really, really been great for me, who has more of a basic science background and, and virus background, to have to be able to work with somebody like Laura, who really has the clinical background and the, the um, pathology background. And it's, so it's been a pretty productive team. And um, yeah, I guess that's sort of how, sort of the story of how I got into it. That's awesome. I mean, it's uh, the, the work with the IBD and then the transition it over into the NIDO. It's like uh, you're working with all our worst nightmares. So this is uh, fantastic. So <laughs> awesome. <laughs> So do you guys know, maybe you can answer this, Mark, do you know if it's, do we know if it's the same virus that's found in ball pythons that's in Morelia or other pythons? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. So the answer is maybe. So in, in some viruses, there's a really, what the, the term for that is species specificity. So for some viruses, there's a, there's a human version and say there's a mouse version, version and a monkey version. And there's a very strong one-to-one relationship between virus and the, and the animal that it's infecting. But for these viruses, so far the evidence we have does not really support that. It looks like there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a more than one virus, um, but okay. there does not seem to be a strong one-to-one relationship between the the, to the exact strain of the virus and the the snake that that, that virus is infecting. So we've seen viruses that are very similar genetically in ball pythons and green tree pythons. And we've seen um, viruses that are very different in, in green tree pythons, for instance. So from okay. one green tree python to the next, there, there, there can be very different viruses. So there are multiple viruses, which suggests that there's been multiple introductions into the uh-huh. captive snake population, probably from, so these different viruses probably came from wild snakes that were infected by different viruses that were imported and, and they were subclinically infected and okay. that have now spread within cats populations. Um, so, that, you know, whether in nature there is sort of a strict one-run relationship between, say, ball pythons and ball python nidoviruses and green tree pythons and green tree python nidoviruses. So that may exist in, in nature, but now in captivity it's all getting mixed together is my feeling. I don't know if you have anything to say on that, Laura. Yeah, I mean, that's basically how I would describe it, too, as far as um, doing the experiments to actually show that, like, some virus that we take out of a ball python can directly infect a green tree python. That that kind of stuff hasn't been done yet. Um, but okay. there are studies that we're working on in order to kind of track viruses within a population, such as Pia's collection or other collections that we're working with, to show that one with the same um, 
or one strain we can find in multiple different species of snakes, and therefore it's likely that it was transmitted between all of those. So that's kind of where we're at. But, yeah, maybe, but likely that there's different ones. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so I guess even though your study was on ball pythons, can we take apply that to all of the species that have been infected with the virus? Like, Yeah, for the most part. I think that it really is that we can definitively say that nidovirus does cause respiratory disease in snakes. We definitely have significant evidence for that. Um, okay. The problem becomes is knowing specifically how each snake species reacts to each virus or strain of this virus in that it may be that a lot of them can get infected, but not necessarily mm-hmm. all of them manifest as disease or severe disease. So some may get it less severe than others. Some may die from it. So that kind of difference between virus that infects and the species that it infects and how they react is still uh, an unknown question. Okay. All right. So <clears throat> do we have a better idea from from the paper that you guys did, um, you know, what to look for in this virus as far as symptoms go? So it's respiratory infection. Is there anything else that... Yeah, um, so like Pia and Cody have talked about where they kind of get the upper respiratory signs and they get a lot of um, secretions. So uh, mm-hmm. oftentimes when you open up their mouth, you'll see a lot more mucus than what you would usually expect. Um, and it tends to be very viscous and stringy. Um, and that's actually the first sign that we saw during our experimental infections was just a lot of mucus production within the mouth. Um, and sometimes mm-hmm. that can spill over into uh, the nasal cavity um, and they can get kind of this bubbling in their in their mouth when they're breathing uh, that can also kind of result in a bit of an increased uh, respiratory rate or um, obstructing all of that mucus. So that's really the most prominent. But then as that is, um, you can get free of uh, like ulcerations or like they were saying, keto especially if you're going to get infections on top of the infection. Uh, Uh And then just respiratory general of using more difficulty breathing or wheezing. Okay. Wow. As far as it being any respiratory viruses, it's not necessarily things that are very specific for nitrogen, which is a... um, logically that we do see if people send to get necropsy um, the esophagus as it is actually a feckle it tends to be really kind of nasty looking on both necropsy and look at the tissues under a microscope so sometimes if you have virus testing but you send off necropsy that might be that you should start testing virus okay Hmm. I don't what know if about, that was helpful at all. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's that's no, good. <laughs> it was kind of breaking up a little bit. That's why I. But I. I got oh, it. I apologize. I'm sorry. No, no, no worries. Um, so, I think in the paper it talked about inf- um, that um, the uh, infectious virus and oral secretions and feces suggest possible transmission routes. Um, is that the current thought of how this is? Uh, can be passed? 
Yeah, um, and this is actually pretty similar to closely related viruses that usually affect either the respiratory or else kind of the gastrointestinal tract. Um, that those are two big routes for which the virus is shed. Um, so there could be other methods of shedding for this virus, but thus far what we found is that um, feces and then kind of all of that mucus in their mouth um, mm -hmm. are good carriers of infectious virus and are definitely ways for which this could potentially be spread. Um, and so that's why it's important, like Cody was talking about, um, as far as uh, kind of, keeping everything separate that's nidovirus positive, not handling snakes one after the other because you really can transfer those kind of materials between snakes. All right, that's, that's awesome. So, I I mean, when it comes to uh, trying to I, – I lost my spot here. <laughs> um <laughs> That, so do we, we definitely have a better idea of the symptoms. Is there anything else kind of like early sign that you can kind of point to, or is it still kind of like the symptoms can just kind of appear out of nowhere and pick up speed, and all of a sudden it goes from seemingly fine animal to totally out in left field overnight? It's probably a good question for Pia. Yeah, uh, uh, okay, so Pia, um did did that kind of happen where it was totally fine and then boom we're all the way off to the races overnight or was there some kind of trigger that you guys noticed? Um, I feel like in in our experience and um, Laura was you know she knows that we have multiple strains of nidovirus in our collection so I think I think there's definitely two different kinds of presentations that we see in nidovirus. Uh, one is that kind of acute they start having a respiratory sign they go downhill real quick and they die within like mm -hmm. a week to two weeks. Um, but then you also see the ones that are kind of that waxing, waning, you know, you see some respiratories, they, they still are okay. You know, they might still be eating, but still wheezing. They might, you know, be kind of not, not great for a couple of months. And, you know, most people would probably take their animal to a veterinarian and get, you know, just a culture and sensitivity and they start on antibiotics and they get better and then they're good for a few months and then it kind of recycles. And so I think there's, uh, and this is my own personal theory, is I think there's just two different kind of presentations where it's either, you know, the animal can have some sort of kind of immunity to the virus where they can um, where they can kind of recover from it and kind of keep it at bay, but they're still, you know, showing some signs. Um, and then there's the one where it just full-blown, you know, takes them out, annihilates them, and there's nothing you can do to help them. No. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> Now and, and we and we have seen both in our collection, so we're okay. You know. So it really just affects each animal individually. You can have guys who can hang on, and you can have guys that succumb quickly. Yeah, and I, I mean, and I don't know. Um, this is something that we're probably going to be looking at in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. Just kind of um, looking at how quickly the animal shows signs and they died, and then also maybe correlating that with what virus um, sequence or strain that they have and seeing if there is anything that, you know, kind of correlates one to the other where we can kind of get an idea if there's a more virulent um, virus uh, strain versus one that they can kind of hold on to and, and not, not show any clinical signs or show very minimal clinical signs. Yeah. So... Do we so do we don't really know from the onset uh to actual death how long 
it, it varies. So that's pretty much it, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it definitely death. does vary. Okay. Yeah, and I think it depends on, you know, probably the animal's previous health, how well they were, you know, how well their immune system was working, you know, mm-hmm. any other initial stressors or, you know, there's a, unfortunately with, you know, with live animals and, and viruses and diseases, there's really no, like, clear-cut, you know, they're going to get the virus on this day and they're going to show signs on this day and they're going to do this. It's kind of very variable between each individual. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I would, I am definitely now more, if I see a respiratory sign, because I used to get phone calls all the time. You're like, oh, my snake's showing some respiratory. I'm like, okay, you know, you can, you know, make an appointment sometime in the next week and you can bring it in. But now it's like if somebody says I have a respiratory infection, I would say bring it in as soon as you can because you never know if it's going to be something that's more severe than than before so okay so that's kind of just that that turned up a little bit um the uh is is it possible that a snake fights off the virus and then it's gone like you know like i don't know a cold virus in a human or is this one of those things where it will linger on the animal for its entire life now and it's just got it i think lauren and mark can probably answer that one better than i can Okay. Uh, Laura, Mark, um, anybody want to jump in on that one? <laughs> well, based on uh, the consecutive samples that we've gotten from Pia's collection, so we've actually been testing her collection for over a year now, um, the same the same snakes have come up positive consistently. Um, but in the last um, probably six months, we've been able to have some that have been positive actually come up negative. Um, okay. We still need to do more testing on these snakes to figure out whether or not they stay negative um, or if this is just an indication that maybe they can clear it and if they get exposed again, then they'll get it again um, or if this is just kind of a lapse in their uh, in their shedding of the virus, which we don't know for sure yet if, um, if they can be kind of intermittent shedders, which can sometimes happen with viruses um, if it, they're not having a specifically productive time period of, of um, viral activity, I suppose. Um, okay. So that question is still open of whether or not they can clear it and be clear and have total immunity against it. Um, but it is looking positive for the potential to clear the virus, um, oh, wow. at least for some period, some period of time. Uh, granted, that's very preliminary data, so it's definitely not – Something that right. I would hang your Don't hat, hang on, hat at on at this point. Got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. But but Got it's you. certainly exciting that that there's potential for that at this point. Okay. And yeah, is it that's, pos- that's a that's a light at the end of the tunnel for us right now. Is that we're hoping that we can clear the virus and all the ones that we have in our NIDO shed. So we're fingers that would crossed. Be amazing. That's, that's the way that it's going. That would be awesome. So now. Go ahead, whoever's speaking, please God yeah, interrupt is, me. I was just gonna I was gonna <laughs> say that um yeah, excuse my interruption. I was just gonna say that I think that Laura's you know, the story of, of you know, con- consecutive sampling of PS snakes and the fact that some of them have been infected for months but not, you know, have not succumbed to disease, you know, illustrates the fact that the the time between infection and onset could be really variable. Um in our experimental infection the snakes started to show symptoms at about 10 weeks post-infection is that or five weeks is that five weeks Laura uh um, yeah five weeks yeah so so it, it, it could be as early as five weeks post-infection and we gave them a, a fairly high dose you know directly into their tracheas um 
But, you know, they could also go for months being clinically, you know, being infected and possibly mm-hmm. infecting other snakes um, before they show symptoms. So I think that, you know, if you do, I think this, you know, speaks to, to the importance of quarantine and testing yeah. with specific tests that are sensitive and specific for nidovirus if you really want to be sure that a new snake that you've brought in is, is truly uninfected. I do not think, you know, you should wait for it to show symptoms. I think you should, if you're worried, you should test it even, even if it seems healthy and it's a, it's something that you're introducing. Okay. So like the next question was pretty much going to be, do we think that if we clear the one strain, is it possible to get the next strain? But we haven't even done any of that research yet. So, I mean, that it'd be too early to ask any kind of question like that. Correct. Yeah. Um, but hopefully, I mean, with, with the continuation of sampling Pia's snakes, um, mm. we may be able to investigate that in the next year or two. Perfect. That's awesome. So um, I know that we're probably going to, and I know Mark just mentioned the quarantine stuff, and I know uh, Pia and Cody have pretty much separated their entire collections and uh, to the point of keeping the NIDO-positive animals away from the NIDO-negative animals, but uh, what are the best quarantine practices to kind of come at this thing. Um, I guess I'll just throw that out to, uh, I guess Cody and Pete ask what you guys do for your quarantine now um, uh, Uh, with you guys. Well, I'd say our, our quarantine protocol is um, kind of based on what we've done at kind of zoos and things like that is we, we quarantine all of our snakes um, and, you know, all our reptiles for uh, three months. And, uh, and that will, depending on kind of the number of animals that we have, it will usually go, it will go in a different room, um, being worked differently, worked different days, either showering between, um, they have different, you know, hooks and things like that that we keep in different rooms. Um, uh, and then what we do is we don't necessarily do the ideal thing, which we would want to do is, you know, full blood work, CBC chemistry, um, you know, but that we do fecals and we do um, NIDO testing on all of our pythons now. But um, I do take swabs on a lot of our new uh, acquisitions and just freeze them in case we're going to do further testing. But, um, but yeah, three months quarantine, monitoring, you know, shedding cycles, uh, mm. feeding if they're eating well. Um, and then sometimes our animals will be in quarantine longer than the three months, just depending on, because um, a lot of times, you know, we have a, a fairly large venomous collection and we have, uh, certain people that we will get animals from. So we have, uh, we kind of have rooms that we have separated for different people that we get animals from and we quarantine them that way. So um, kind of in our, in our bathroom, we have a group of animals that we've gotten from a certain, um, you know, other private, uh, you know, venomous breeder. And then we have another room where we have other animals. So we kind of do it that way. Um, and then if a new animal comes into that quarantine area, then the, the three month quarantine starts all over. So, okay. Um, and that's kind so of that's, that's kind of how good. we've done it. Um, uh, an- another yeah. thing that I'll I'll, I'll add to that, um, yeah. You know, and this this is um, yeah. A- anybody can do this. It's real simple. And um, it, uh, what we do is, you know, the twenty inch box fans. You can get mm-hmm. them at at Home Depot or Lowe's. Well, we get the highest grade uh, air filter that you can get at those department stores that will tell you what it filters out, pet dander, you know, fungus. um, And then there'll there'll be one that'll say viruses on there. And we will 
stick one of those to the back of those box bands and turn them on at their highest level. And we've got them actually um, in front of every air duct um, in our, our house slash facility. And um, we have the highest grade air filter um, for the main house too. So as that air is circulating through the vents or whatever, when it comes out of the main house vent or the facility vent in this case, it goes right into that air filter and gets, it gets cycled it, uh, through again. Now these filters say that they need to be changed every three months. Well, when you're running them like this in about a yeah. month and a half, they are, they are brown and gross. So you could like, you, they're, they're clearly pulling, um, you know, particles and things out of the air, um, and just dust and what have you. So let's say you're dealing with, um, uh, something that's aerosolized or you're cleaning uh, your enclosures, you have substrate or whatever, you're, you're crumbling up paper, um, stuff is getting into the air. So by having those uh, fans going full blast and they are going 24-7 and, um, you know, the hope is that if there's any anything bad floating in the air, those filters are going to catch it. Now, is it is it um, preventing the animals from getting sick. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but right. It's just one of those extra steps that you can do. And it's, and it's not expensive to do. Um, this was a, uh, um, a, uh, a technique that was taught to, taught to me by uh, a good friend, Terry Cullen, who's a, a well-known um, member of the crocodilian community and just an overall uh, incredibly knowledgeable herpetologist. And uh, when he showed this to us, he basically was saying how this will do the job of some of these, um, you know, $1,000 air filters that you can buy, you know, 40 bucks into it. And you just change these air filters out as they get, um, as they get gross, you know, it, it says three months, um, you know, for your house, but if you're running them like this, I would just change them as, as, uh, as you see fit when they look, when they when they when they're not white anymore, um, you know, switch Time them to out. Change them. The, the, yeah. These filters are sixteen bucks a piece, um, which when you go there and you buy, you know, a, a army a small army of them for all your box filters, it kind of hurts a little bit, mm. <laughs> you know, good knowing that you're gonna have to swap them out in a month. But you know, a lot of us have really high end animals that we 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 all spent a, a lot of our hard earned money money on and. Um, you know, a lot of us in the reptile industry are not are not rich, so it uh, you know it, it can hurt. But if you're spending thousands of dollars on these animals, you know you can you could warrant spending a few bucks on on something like this just to help uh, in the preventative measures. And um, and yeah, so so we use those and and we really like them. Um, and if if, no, if nothing else, we have the best air quality out of anybody else for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that that's a positive, but um, for for cleaning, uh, for like you know, because we're kind of already kind of touching on that a little bit. Um, do you guys have like a certain practice? Like, do you guys move from one end of your room around to the other? Do you deal with these guys first, these guys last? And also, what what do you guys use for cleaning? Do you guys recommend a certain type of cleaner, um, whether it be bleach or F10 or something like that? Um, well, uh, to answer your first question on, on, on moving, moving through the collection, 
Um, I'll usually try to start with neonates first. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, because generally the adults, uh, their seeds and they've been around a while. These usually are the, uh, the adults are what we're seeing issues in regardless of species. Um, so I, I tend not to uh, go for them first. And if I do, um, I will uh, most likely take a shower before messing around with anything else. Um, I'll spray off my shoes, um, clothes, what have you, um, with whatever disinfectants that we're, we're using. So currently we're using um, Simple Green, which is a quantitary ammonia. Um, mm-hmm. You could get it at Lowe's Home Depot for 11 bucks for a gallon and, and um, in high concentration and mix it up. Um, it's um, it's uh, non-toxic to the animals. Uh, so that's, that's a plus, and uh, currently we're using that. But we have ran the gamut of different disinfectants. We've used Broadside, which is um, the, the, typically a veterinary quantitary ammonia. Um, we, we used that when I was in, you know, in multiple zoos. Um, chlorhexidine, but that doesn't have as wide of a kill margin as your quantitary ammonia is on a lot of these viruses and stuff. Bleach is great, but... When it comes in contact with organic material, uh, you know it, it's not it's not so effective. And you you after about 24 hours, you severely lose your uh, efficacy on 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 the kill margin there. So unless you are really proactive on swapping out your uh, bleach, uh, mm-hmm. it may not be the best thing to use. I mean, if you're if you're cleaning multiple bowls or whatever tubs uh, enclosures and you have in a big bucket of water outside and you're doing everything in that sitting um, bleach is great uh, but uh, currently uh, I really like the, uh, the simple green and it has a nice fresh smell to it so that, that's nice too but um, but so yeah well, I'll go through uh, neonate animals first um, animals that so we we have our entire collection tested for nidovirus so we know uh, who has it who doesn't Animals mm-hmm. we have it are, are segregated into a different building. So all of our green we um, we only have green tree pythons that are in the in the main area that are are negative, and those are the babies that we produce, and a few of the sub adults. Um, and I will work our fresh hatchlings. Well, I guess they're not fresh hatchlings anymore, but our juveniles uh, first before I, I work the older animals. Even though the older animals have tested positive, I still work them separately from the babies. Um, and you mean um, negative? I, I try. Did I say positive? Yes, that was you confusing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah, we got you. Yeah, it's you good. Get it, you, you get it mixed. Yeah, you get it mixed up all the time. Thanks for the clarification, Pia. Um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I even I even wa- I watch after working the uh, sub adults that are negative. Mm-hmm. Um, I even watch where, you know, when I'm walking past the rack that the babies are housed in or I'll spray off my shoes and pants. And it's probably not good to spray yourself with this stuff, but I, I do it all the time. And because uh, I'm just so paranoid, I'd rather I have their best interest in mine over, over mine. And, um, you know, just any animals that look, you know, if animals aren't eating or you, you know who's, who's really solid in your collection and who may be the picky feeders or whatever, where you just kind of don't want to touch them, even though that you know that they're okay. Um, I, I'll work them lastly. So even in the animals that are totally outwardly healthy, um, you know, Morelia or not, 
Um, I just kind of gauge it on each individual animal who I'm going to work. And I will work separate racks and separate rooms um, and then and then completely clean myself off before um, going around and messing around with any other animals. Um, I thoroughly scrub out um, holding containers. So let's say, uh, like, we've got a rack of baby gaboon vipers that are captive-born. Um, I will use the same container um, to, to transfer them in to clean their enclosure, and I may not spray out that, um, that bucket in between each animal unless they mm-hmm. defecate in the bucket or whatever because they're all housed in the same rack within the same proximity to each other. Um, so I and mean, not the same litter. Between, and they're from the same litter. So you kind of – you have to be a little bit practical about it. And, I, you know, you could – could you say that there's overkill? Maybe yes, maybe no. But um, but when I when I transfer to working a different rack after them, then absolutely the bucket gets completely sprayed out, scrubbed down, take it outside, hose it out until there's no more uh, suds from the simple green or whatever disinfectant that we're using uh, before I, I put other animals in there. Um, I be, is there anything else that I missed? I'm sure I'm sure I am because it's just like I get c- caught up in it. So. I was going to just say that Cody is lucky enough to uh, work the collection full time, so um, so he gets to kind of you know do his days the way that um, kind of he he sees fit and everything. And then I um, the nice or the good thing with us is since we are two different people who can work the collection, I work the NIDA group um, just myself, and so that way mm-hmm. Cody doesn't even go into that building unless we're swabbing snakes. Um, so that's another thing if. If you have the ability and you have NIDO um, positive animals, uh, obviously if you can put them in a separate building, that's great. But if you can put them in a separate room and have somebody else work them um, is great. Or if you just work them on a separate day. The other thing that uh, we do is we have different shoes um, for, like, the NIDO building. I have different clothes that I wear in the NIDO building. Um, and then, obviously, showers uh, in between. I mean, and the, the thing you kind of have to think about is, yes, we're talking about NIDO virus right now, but there's mm-hmm. other viruses and other diseases that you kind of have to think about. But, you know, if you're keeping multiple different species, you should probably know what, what are the worst of the worst and try to, um, try to you know, mitigate any kind of disease transfer or anything you can do um, for that. And that's that being said, with the disinfectants that you use, that you know, if you're using uh, quantary ammonia versus a bleach versus you know vinegar, there's different things that those ones will kill. Um, and obviously, don't mix them all because you're going to make uh, you know, what is it, uh, mustard gas or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've done that before. It's bad. <laughs> so um, yeah. I would not recommend doing that at all. <laughs> so yeah, I had a. Bad story. I had a friend, uh, so I used to work in the Humane Society um, doing dog and cat stuff way, way, way back in the day. Um, and we would do we would do quantary ammonias and we would do bleach um, and a lot of our parvo puppy cases and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a friend of mine who got um, severe uh, brain tumor and had uh, epilepsy and stuff because of the, the nerve gases that she inhaled. So, so don't uh, do I'm that. Sure. I'm next. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I'm sure I'm next on that one. After after <laughs> you're this. spraying yourself down with chemicals, yeah, that's uh, yeah. I, 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 I'll I'll tell you one time. Uh, I was at the uh, at the zoo. I'm not going to say which one, um, but uh, we were working uh, the uh, a vet visit for uh, Philippine cobras, 
and some McGregor's tree vipers. And we were, um, there, there were mites that were found in, in one of those groups. And, uh, at that time we were putting this NYX spray that mm. all the hurt people say, Oh, put NYX in, in there and it, it may work, but it's nothing to, uh, you know, compared to preventamide. And I'm not going to get on that soapbox, but preventamide's better, um, for, for everything. But, um, anyway, I, <laughs> I sprayed my whole, like I sprayed my arms and I sprayed my pants and my shirt with the NYX spray. And I, uh, fold, I, I, I had a, I had a face shield, right. Cause it was a spitting cover we were working with. And I put this, I put my face shield down and this right after I sprayed this stuff. Now this is a chemical and now like the, the fumes are, are, are coming up into the face mask and I'm I, like I'm pretty sure I'm about to pass out because I'm not feeling so hot. I'm holding this spitting cobra in a snake tube while Pia and the rest of the crew are working on this thing. But I'm not saying anything because you know I didn't want to. Yeah, yeah, like I just sprayed myself with a bunch of chemicals on a paint on the table, so I just kind of rode through it. Uh, but I know it definitely wasn't good for me, and I'm, I'm not going to spray myself with that one again. But, um, but yeah, but uh, quarantine moving forward because we're in the process of building. Uh, they're moving forward to building buildings and we may actually um, be uh, moving to another property. If, if this happens, a larger property um, mm-hmm. where, where, where we can do a lot more, we're on five acres now, but this, this will be a 40 acre property if we're able to get it. And um, we ideally would want an isolation building, if not a few isolation buildings to be able to pull animals of any kind um, that are showing clinical signs, whether it's an virus or something else, and separate them from the main collection, but then also have uh, multiple quarantine buildings for new acquisitions coming in. So they are standalone buildings. They do not share the airflow of, of the same facility, and there's not going to be hundreds of animals in the same uh, building. It'll be one or two, or if you buy um, a few animals from somebody that they all came from the same collection. These animals would all go into that building together and get your rounds of tests. You know, not everything needs a bunch of blood work and a bunch of this, that, and the other, but you know, you may be just observing them. But in the case of Morelia, the, um, the quarantine would be and ent- uh, quarantine entrance swab for nidovirus and the animal would stay in quarantine. Well, currently our quarantine is, is 90 days. Um, but for, mm. in the case of nidovirus, um, I have no problem extending that to six months or even a year while we do multiple tests to ensure that the animal has tested negative for nidovirus multiple times through different stages of stress and, and things that may cause this animal to start showing clinical signs uh, in the future uh, before getting introduced into the main collection. And um, uh, th- that's where we would want to go ideally um and uh but you know not everybody has the the ability to do that but if you have a large collection of stuff you know you might want to invest in a you know a couple thousand dollar tough shed and put a window unit in there and and do swabs and not not be in such a hurry to get the latest and greatest thing um and i know we all we all want everything (laughs) believe me you know you see something and Hmm. you got to have it and uh, you know, we always say this is the last one. I don't know how many times I've told Pia, this is the last one. I promise you, <laughs> you know, we, after we got some of our Jameson's mambas, this, this was the last one. We don't need any more. We're totally, you know, we've got the whole group. Oh, but these came up and they're such a good deal. We can't pass these up. Look how good these things look, you know? So they come in, the, in too. You, you just have to have the ability to, 
um, you know, make sure that you're, you're not mixing and matching too much and that you're, you know, looking um, for issues. Um, and when you look for stuff, you find it. I mean, most of the, uh, the Morelia community had no idea that, that, this, that this virus was actually a thing. Some people did, but most people, this is the first time that they're ever hearing this. And, um, you know, it's kind of dropping, a, dropping an atom bomb there. Um, but, but just think how many viruses that we just have no idea uh, that are floating through our collections that, um, that don't even have a name yet. So, uh, you know, you, you just have to do your own due diligence. And what are we going to do? Just stop keeping snakes all together because these animals get viruses. Uh, it's just like it blows me away. Like people think that you're going to keep all these crazy exotic animals and you, they're just going to live happy, healthy lives forever. They don't get sick and it's just rainbows and, and, and fairy tales. And it's just not that way. And, um, you know, you have to be able to, you know, manage it effectively. But, um, you know, it's, we, we may be working with stuff in our collections that, that, you know, doesn't even exist yet, or at least, uh, you know, in science or it's not on paper yet. Um, so it's not going to stop us from doing it, but as long as we know about vi- these, you know, the viruses that certain species can get and you, you know how to test for them and how to look for them and be proactive against them, uh, you, you know, you're that much more aware about how to, how to fight against it. So. So there. when it comes with um I know there was discussion uh when we when we talked to you guys on GTP Keeper that babies were born uh negative from positive parents how are you guys dealing with the uh, uh the separation of babies to parents and all that fun stuff that you guys have to do Um okay so we only did that once and okay. thank God we did. Thank God we did because we lost most of our, our animals that are capable of breeding. Um, I think we only have a few adult green tree pythons that are females. Um, and I'm, I'm not super hopeful that we're going to be able to produce from them. And this was, this was huge. This is groundbreaking that we were able to get this clutch because when they did breed, I wasn't expecting anything uh, from it, to be honest. I, I thought, you know, she's either going to die before or, she's going to just lay a pile of slugs because I have healthy animals that lay piles of slugs all the time. So she was known cytovirus uh, positive and, uh, and so was the male. So I wasn't expecting a whole lot. So when we got 17 fertile eggs, I was pretty uh, happy, um, but also very skeptical at the same time. And what we did, we had, um, we had two, two different um, egg boxes that we set up. The female wrapped, um, 14 eggs and kicked out three. And as you know, with a lot of these pythons, you know, a lot of the infertiles and slugs get kicked off to the side. So we thought that these ones are probably no good, but we'll set them up anyway. Um, they, you know, they did have minor vein development and stuff. Um, what we did with a group of 14 that were, um, you know, adhered together, uh, we removed the female uh, as soon as we could um, after laying, I caught her laying in the morning and, uh, I waited till P got home from work to remove her. Cause I wasn't sure when she was, when she was done. So I didn't mm-hmm. want to start trying to rip her off the eggs if she was still in the middle of laying. So I figured by the end of the day, she should be done, which she was, uh, removed her from the eggs, um, stuck her in a tub of water so she can hydrate and all of that stuff. And we took a Zoomed or it was ExoTerra 5.0 UV bulb and ran it over that clutch of eggs 
for about a minute or so. Um, I think this is often done with, uh, with poultry, um, you know, to, mm-hmm. to kind of kill off any bacteria or anything on the eggs. So we, we wanted to do something, but when you have a clutch of, you know, blue line green tree python eggs, you don't really want to just be spraying them with a bunch of stuff, you know, cause right. you, know, you don't want to kill, you don't want to kill them right from the start. I didn't know what I was doing. So uh, I figured the UV was the less invasive thing. So we did that with the pile that was adhered together. We did not separate them and uh, we didn't separate the eggs. Um, and then the three that were uh, kicked out to the side, we did not do the UV because we just wanted to see if those ones would hatch out positive versus the ones that we did the UV on and, what have you. Um, so they all ended up, so 16 of the 17 hatched, um, two of the ones that uh, out of the, the, bo- the um, egg box of three hatched. And then one, the other, the last one was a stillborn, a completely developed stillborn. And, mm-hmm. um, as they were hatching, thank, thank God that the, the chondros don't tend to just blast out of the eggs when they're born. We caught them when they pipped, they just sat there, you know, they weren't in any hurry to come out of the egg. So what we did is we, we peeled them apart from the egg mass as they started pipping because they're full-formed snakes now. So I'm not, I'm not so worried about jostling the egg around at this point. So we, we separated them and put them all in their individual um, holding containers, which they would eventually be, you know, hatched out and then be their, their nursery tubs um, because we wanted to be able to have the exact egg to the exact animal so we could send a Mark and Laura. So we, we could test the egg and the contents and then also have that animal there to see if that animal also tested positive or not. Um, what, so all the eggs ended up being positive, the ones that were hit with UV and the ones that weren't, um, but the animals themselves were not. And Laura and Mark could definitely chime in and, and touch in on this. Maybe it was that they didn't get um, the virus because so much time went by uh, during incubation that the virus just wasn't the, you know, enough to um, yeah, infect a, an animal. It could be that the respiratory tract of that baby or whatever was that they, you know, they weren't able to, to get it into them. Um, it was just contaminant from the mother's cloaca or her breathing on them when she was wrapping around them. Um, but to my understanding, nidovirus is fairly weak outside of the, the host. Um, so it just may not have, um, you know, been active during that time. So I'm going to come up for air and I'll let Mark and Laura take it from there because they have a better understanding of that than I do. Yeah. Is there any kind of a reason why we think it didn't penetrate the egg? Um, so our kind of thought on that is that, um, is that potentially the outside of the egg, like Cody said, could have been exposed to an endovirus either from, um, the cloaca of the female or, um, or potentially oral secretions if she was having clinical signs at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but since these, um, since these hatchlings were separated from the eggs pretty quickly, um, it's possible that they weren't actually ever exposed to the virus that was um, isolated to kind of the outside of that egg. Um, you know, viruses probably don't penetrate calcium or calcified eggs very well. And granted, um, snake eggs are a bit softer, uh, mm-hmm. than chicken eggs, but, uh, but if they're kind of, if the virus is contained to the outside of the egg, if you separate out that neonate from the egg to begin with, 
and it's never really exposed to either the um, infected female or the outside of the egg. It's possible that that's the reason why these guys never got exposed and never got infected. Um, but the other possibility, like Cody said, is maybe these um, neonates aren't really set up to get infected. Um, the It's potential that the kind of respiratory tract and the cells in the respiratory tract aren't necessarily um, kind of permissive to infection at this point, just based on kind of general physiology. And this is just a total shot in the dark as far as like if that's the reason why we really don't know why um but those are some possibilities but obviously the the way that p and cody went about controlling the spread of this virus to these neonates has worked at this point seeing as they're now juveniles and we've tested them multiple times and they stayed negative um and mark can maybe weigh in a little bit more on this if he has other theories sure yeah please um, I, I think uh, I think Cody's point about you know the the way we detected virus on the outside of the eggs was that we could detect the the RNA of the virus the the, the genome yeah, of these viruses RNA. So mm-hmm. and like Cody said, detecting that is not the same as detecting infectious virus. And you know, given the incubation period, it's definitely possible that the virus that we detected wasn't was no longer actually infectious. Infectious. The other the other kind of thing to add to this is that. Um, when we did our experimental infections, one of the things we did at the end of those was to, you know, necropsy the infected snakes and look at every tissue in the snake and mm-hmm. use a specific um, reagent that would detect the virus in, in infected cells. And really the only place we could really detect virus was in the respiratory tract. Um, we could see uh, virus in the, the gut of the snakes, but that looked like it was, uh, virus that the snakes had swallowed and was passing through um, through the snake's uh, the, uh, digestive tract. So we didn't see, we did not see virus in ovaries or any other cells that um, that would produce a, a what we would call a vertical transmission, so a transmission directly from the mom or the dad to like the inside to like the embryo itself. Okay. Uh, so that's actually a reassuring thing that. Um, and this is in contrast to other viruses that do get passed, um, you know, from, from mother or father to child. You know, famously Zika, is ha- that's happening right now, um, where that, that's a virus that actually can infect, um, you know, sperm or eggs or, or otherwise pass to a developing embryo. And so, um, so I think that th- this is sort of a reassuring finding that it looks like, you know, if, you, if you're worried, if you're interested in preventing transmission to the offspring, it's possible. Yeah, that is. I will uh, weigh in on that though. Oh, sorry. Good. No, no. Go ahead, please. Um, just uh, as far as the snakes that we had in our experiment, though, all of them were male, so we didn't actually get an opportunity to test whether or not they were in ovaries per se, and also they were all juveniles. So again, they weren't at the um, uh, kind of sexual maturity that you would need in order to assess specifically whether or not it was in um in the reproductive tract. But like Mark said, we really only found it in the respiratory tract and not elsewhere in the body. And in the case of PN Cody's, we don't have evidence that it's transmitted through the egg, kind of like in the egg sac um, from the mother to the offspring, and that you can have them born negative. So. Uh, will that be something that will be kind of added? I know you guys are doing the work at the University of Colorado. Um, will you guys attempt to breed to positive animals to see that, or will we rely on, 
possibly having uh, more information from outside people like Cody and Pia about this kind of stuff? Yeah, so um, we personally aren't planning on doing breeding studies, but um, a couple of uh, the collections that we're working with have talked about doing breeding. Um, and so there's potential down the road to investigate that, either from Pia and Cody or from some of the other people that we're working with, um, if those opportunities arise. Okay. Uh, and okay. then I also want to um, I also want to say that I have never personally seen, and I've been keeping green tree pythons since 2007, and of course I've seen respiratory problems uh, in adults and sub-adults uh, during that whole time, um, and of course uh, you know the generic respiratory infection that everybody that keeps these things talks about um, was most likely this, you know, in my in my personal opinion, um, but I've never seen respiratory problems in animals. Um, you know, from neonates to let's just say a year and a half of age or so um, ever. It's only once they start getting into that sub-adult stage that I've started seeing that. And of course, these are animals that are now housed with uh, adults in the collection, um, you know, so where they might be um, getting that from, you know, you're, you're, you're going from one animal to the next, uh, you're crumbling a paper, you're moving around mulch or whatever your substrate is, you're going to the next one you're grabbing water dishes and you're not uh, sterilizing your hands or changing gloves in between or whatever your practices are. You're putting your thumb in that, just doing a quick dump out of the water, spray it out, put it back in and then go to the next one. So you might be putting in a viral you know, contaminants in, in each one of these animals, waters or, or what have you. Um, and that's where you may, may start seeing that. Um, and that's where I just think it's so important to keep, uh, neonates and young animals that are not in your breeding rotation completely separate from your adults. I think if, if people are not going above and beyond to test their animals, um, if you are breeding them and you're at least um, collecting those eggs and moving them into a different area, preferably a different building or just keeping them as so far away from the adults as you can, hatching them out and rearing them away from them, you have a much better chance of having animals that are, that are not infected with this. Um, and then when you're ready to breed them, um, you know, you, you obviously expose them to that. And if you're not, if you don't, we have the, we have had the luxury of being able to test our entire Morelia collection. So we have our finger on the pulse of every animal in the collection, which is very helpful. If you only test a couple animals, um, that you may think, you know, if this animal had a respiratory virus or something, um, but you don't test them all, then you, you, you could be missing something because we have animals that have been asymptomatic the whole time that are, are, are that have this virus. So um, I think it's very important to, if you are, if you are serious about this to, uh, to, to test these animals. Um, if you're, if you're spending thousands of dollars on, on individual animals, uh, you know, spend, spend a little to, to ensure that, to know what, what you're dealing with, because now that this is on the table um, and, and, and people are aware of it, people will start asking breeders, um, have you tested for nidovirus? And if, if they haven't, um, you know, that could, could lose out on uh, a sale or, or, or what have you, um, because people, you know, cause we could answer to the questions, uh, the, the satisfaction of people's questions on, on what we have, 
but if if you don't, then you know it could be it could be challenging because I know personally we're not adding any new pythons to the collection. We we got a couple black-headed pythons and some savus that were gifted to us by one of the PS veterinarian friends, um, and uh, they they've tested. Uh, we, we we sent those samples in, right, Pia? We because yeah, we swabbed they're both them. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> you know. So. Uh, but but other than that, I'm not I'm not actively on a a, a, a Python buying spree like I once was. Um, but if I if I were to buy something from anybody, I would definitely um, at least you know if they're not going to test, um, at least inform them that I, that we will be testing and and they will not be exposed to our main collection. So if they if they come up positive, it's not because that they, they got infected from one of ours. It was an animal that was infected previous. So then you have to come up with something with the seller, whether the animal gets sent back, gets euthanized, um, or whatever you agree on. But, um, you know, I think the, the seller is obviously part responsible, but it's also on the buyer's end to be aware of what you're buying and who you're buying from and the consequences of that if, if, if the animals are not tested and the animals just go right into your main collection. Okay. So. I was going to ask, I I think you kind of hit on this, Cody, but um, if age played a part in the progression of the virus. Also, is there any correlation between the time of year that you guys notice um, animals start to become, um, you know, show signs, uh, meaning like breeding season or something like that due to stress? Have you noticed that? Definitely. Uh, definitely uh, this time of year where we're temperatures are dropping, um, we're currently not pairing any animals from breeding, um, but okay. just um, how our, our uh, layout is in that building, uh, it, does, it does get significantly cooler um, in the wintertime. And we are also pushing these animals more so than we would have if we knew that you know, if they were all healthy animals. Uh, you know, for the sake of all the testing that we're doing, we want to see the threshold of what these animals, um, you know, what what triggers this and what have you. So uh, in the summertime, like basically it, it's exposed to Florida temperatures. Um, so in the, in the summertime, it is hot. We're looking at the high 90s. None of them have any supplemental heat during the, uh, during the summer because you don't need it. <laughs> it's plenty hot. Um, and then the nighttime drops are really cool and are not really cool, but, but pleasant. And uh, just like a, a natural wild um, drop in temperatures in the wintertime, we have supplemental heat. We have uh, heaters that are going in there. Um, some of the animals have, uh, we have uh, heat elements on them. Some of them are just ambient room heat. Um, and um, we are definitely starting to see more clinical signs popping up due to, Colder weather uh, opposed to hot. They definitely, they don't look comfortable during the heat, but um, we're not seeing clinical signs. There's not uh, a ton of animals that are, are bubbling at the mouth and what have you, but, but, but this time um, there, there definitely is. And, and like I said, we're not, we're not pairing for breeding at this time. Gotcha. So um, we got a couple questions in the chat, but I was wondering if maybe, um, so, I don't know if Laura Mark can answer this, but one of the one of the questions that popped up was um, that people don't understand if that 
there are many collections that have asymptomatic animals. Why are they not wiped out, uh, those collections, by now? Um, Any thoughts on that? Like, uh, why it only affects some and not not all? Um, I think, Pia, you guys kind of have a similar situation with one of your asymptomatic snakes. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, we have... We have asymptomatic, um, one of our snakes, Morpheus, uh, he has not shown clinical signs the entire time we've had him. Um, and I mean, and I, I, I can't answer why he has, you know, because he, Laura, he's the one who had the highest uh, viral load that we were seeing initially. Um, yeah. And he is, he has not shown any clinical signs. And I, I have no, I don't know why. Um, but it, I guess kind of back to my series, I think there's just different um, kind of very low strains of the virus where, you know, some of the ones that probably have, you know, died during the time those people had their collections, that they died, you know, just because chondros are being chondros or, or, you know, insert whatever kind of reason that the person thought since they usually don't need cropsy, they just say, oh, it was either you know, stress from breeding, or it was a chondro being a chondro, or it was just an RI. It, it could possibly have been nidovirus, just a more virulent strain, as the other ones that are that have it and are asymptomatic have just been able to kind of, their bodies are able to cover, or I guess live with that virus and not necessarily have, um, you know, have any of those signs. And I guess one thing I would kind of say as well is, you know, Using the word asymptomatic and, um, you know, non-clinical and things like that is a lot of times these animals are showing signs or there are signs in their body, but we just can't detect it. Um, so, I mean, they might have some minor, you know, stomatitis or some minor tracheitis or some minor things, you know, maybe not the, maybe you don't see as, as easily and, and they might still have symptoms, um, uh-huh. but we're just not able to detect it. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of, they might just, you know, have something that we don't know, and it's kind of right below the level of, of being able to detect it, and then something, either a stress or something else, might push them over the edge. Um, but I guess it is it is hard to know why they're, I mean, I guess this, my thought is that there are asymptomatics. They're probably, their, their immune system is able to just keep it at bay just enough to, you know, not show any clinical signs. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, and, um, and I would say that Morpheus, Morpheus has defined everything because it gets hotter than the gates of hell in the summertime and, and pretty cold in the winter. And when it's cold, he, he'd take a meal no problem, no no regurg, uh, no nothing. He sheds perfect every single time. Um, this animal is the epitome of, of of health outward, and you would have no if you did not test for this and you didn't know it. You'd have no freaking clue because, um, I mean, he is just by far the standout of, out of everybody there uh, in, the, in, the, in that group. Um, it's incredible. He just looks so good all the time. And um, so he's awesome. He's definitely my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's also a dream lemon blue line animal, so he couldn't be any more high end at the top of the scale for, for a green tree python. Um, of course. So, and he's probably <laughs> – yeah, I've, I've, I mean, I've known, and he's, he, and he's like 12 years old too. So he's a, he, like, that's not necessarily old. Um, I had a couple of green tree pythons at the alligator farm that were almost 30 years old before they died. 
And um, so, they, I mean, they could live forever. Um, but, I mean, he's he's getting up there, and, and he's been put through the ringer, and he just still manages to be I – mean, I've, known, I've known about this Green Tree Python for, the you know, when I got into Condros, and he's always been an icon of mine, and I never thought we would actually get to own him. And then we got him with the main group, and then, of course, this all happened, so that was kind of a bummer. Um, all the females that I was hoping to breed to him to are now dead. So – um, but you know, oh, that's no. not going to stop. Like, yeah, but if he continues to live, I mean, he's a stellar breeder too. We have animals uh, from his, um, from him that, that we have that, uh, that are negative that, um, that, that we've made available, um, you know, and if they sell great and if they don't, I'm more than happy to keep them. Um, I've got a ridiculous price tag on them. So, you know, they'll probably stay here for a while. And, um, and some people were like, you know, possibility you know like do you think you could do better on the price it's like well he's test uh, uh you know the, the babies that we've had from him have tested negative since we've got them so um there definitely won't be any price breaks um and i would think that i would be more concerned buying something from me if i was willing to do price breaks because of that you know so i'm, sure. I'm, hang, I'm hanging on uh to that but uh but we um you know, we're not out of the Green Tree Python game. We'll just we'll just rebuild stronger than ever. This actually was a blessing in disguise, really, because um, if this didn't happen with the the, the large animals um, showing clinical signs and, and death uh, as rapidly as they were, we never really probably would have looked into it. Just like we've all been going through this over the years, you you have a large collection, you have a couple of them get respiratory problems and you combat those secondary infections they get better and they get back into the breeding pool have an idovirus that um, we treated the secondary infect infection um, and they got better and um, continued to live um, a happy outwardly healthy life um, so I think that we just kind of we just haven't really known what we were dealing with um, and now that now that we do um, we are a lot more on guard because uh, we would have continued to buy ridiculously expensive green tree pythons um, that uh, against against your you know your your wallet's better judgment um, and uh, would have continued to lose them and then just gone back to the oh it's chondros being chondros or people oftentimes love to to blame the genetics oh the, the these ones just aren't strong or whatever the BS that people like to say. Um, and we would have just kept uh, throwing money in the in the toilet. Um, but now that we know this is out there, we can be very selective. We could test and we can know, uh, you know, and not every um, negative sample is a true negative. But after, uh, you know, almost two years and multiple negatives, you kind of have to say, hey, you know, this is this is the best that you can do. You know, it's uh, you're not just going to stop keeping these things so uh that might lead into some some other talk here so on, on that yeah i guess uh i had uh, are you guys going to do any other species of pythons like uh papers on any other species of pythons with nido virus um right now we're we're really just testing a bunch of different collections um with okay. multiple species of snakes so okay. probably in the next couple years, there will be um, 
at least one other paper, if not more, uh, kind of describing what we found by testing a wide range of species and, um, and populations of snakes. So not necessarily in the same capacity that we've done with these ball pythons where we did experimental infections, but rather more of um, kind of a general population assessment um, of what snakes are potentially susceptible to this based on all the ones that we've tested. Okay. Okay. Um, so when it comes to the testing part of it, um, so I guess you kind of just hit on this, Cody, but a negative test really doesn't have the same weight as a positive test. Uh, what's the, uh, is there a certain amount of times that you should test for it to come up negative before you can feel okay? Or should you never uh, feel Mark okay? might I'll, be able to I'll, weigh, weigh yeah, in I'll, on that a bit. <laughs> I'll, I'll weigh in and I'll just give a caveat that I'm, I'm basically making this up, but it's a you know, somewhat educated <laughs> comment. Uh, right, it's I fine. Mean, but I would... I would say personally, like if I tested a snake twice and it, they were both negative and, um, you know, the, 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 the samples were a couple months apart, I would feel very confident that that snake was negative. I mean, that's, like I said, I, you know, I, since we would have to do the experiments to actually know, we'd have to do a lot, a lot, a lot, many more experiments to know conclusively that that's true, but, but that's right. how I would proceed if I were doing it. And um, I mean, I think that we have found that the the um, coinal swab, so basically a swab in the in the mouth of the snake, is. Um, and I think Pia and Cody have actually provided information to people about how to take those swabs. We found those to be a very effective sample for detecting virus. Um, so, so I think that's a it's a convenient non-invasive sample type, and it seems to be a very sensitive type of sample for detection of virus. So. So we we actually don't have any actual evidence of false negatives right now. Um, okay. So so I think that's that's you know I think that's that's working in everybody's favor. Okay. The is one thing that I would add oh, into that is is also just that um, that uh, the way that you kind of take the sample. Um, I know that P has been. Um, kind of educating people on how to do that, but then also the way that you store the sample and how long before you send it in, that can kind of affect um, the success rate of actually finding nidovirus, just because okay. these are um, kind of sensitive viruses, so they're not going to stick around for a long time and be detectable if you keep them out at room temperature for weeks on end. Um, and so, uh, although we, if if the samples are taken correctly and handled properly and tested in a um, in an efficient manner, then, yeah, we don't have any evidence of, like, a negative, um, false negatives coming up. But that is a bit dependent on how people are going about it, just to kind of add that in so that um, so that people know that there is a way to go about it that's, that's correct um, so that you can be sure that a negative is a negative and a positive is a positive. Okay. Is it best and at I, this And point? I can touch. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to just add really quick. Um, uh, so Dr. Susan Fogelson and I have been kind of working hard to try to get some sort of at-home test for non-clinical, like non-sick animals that you're doing for quarantine um, or just basic health assessment of your collection. And that was one thing that we've been trying to do is um, make sure that there is kind of eliminate any risk of you know, sample degradation in at home. So uh, one of the things that we're doing is 
uh, using an RNA DNA stabilizer, which helps keep that virus a little bit better um, contained versus the way that we've been doing it with Laura is, you know, we, we get the swab, it goes in the freezer as soon as possible, and then it's sh sent to her as soon as possible. Um, but, I mean, that's kind of maybe not easy for everybody to do, and if somebody's able to at least put into the stabilizer, then it's a little bit more, you know, it's a little bit more viable once we send it out, and it can be kind of in room temperature a little bit longer and things like that. So, so that's something that we are still working on, and um, hopefully in the next couple of months we'll be having an actual test that we can um, send out to to anybody wanting to do it in the private hobby. So, okay, so yeah. Um, is there any? Has there been any study done on unexplained deaths in pythons that have been shown to be NIDO positive? Um, not that I am aware of. Uh, there haven't okay. really been any retrospective studies done on um, on snakes following kind of these new viruses that are being discovered. So like arenaviruses okay. with IBD or nidovirus. Um, but there's potential for that to be done in the future um, if there are areas or diagnostic labs or things like that that have a bunch of archived samples. Uh, they can go back and test those. We personally aren't working on anything like that, but um, but you may see stuff like that pop up in the future. Is that something that could be missed? Like if, say, you had an animal and you had a necropsy done, is, is, if they weren't looking for that, would you would you miss that? Yeah, it's but it's possible, especially because this is such a new virus. Um, not all veterinarians are necessarily um, not kind of knowledgeable right. about this yet. Probably okay. exotic animal veterinarians um, are getting to know about this pretty well. But outside of that, I mean, people take their snakes to just you know a general vet all the time, and so it's possible that this stuff is getting missed. Um, and the other thing that Mark and I have talked about and that um, people have discussed with us is that uh, our papers um, on these viruses have been in kind of big virology journals that are more okay. scientifically based, not necessarily veterinary journals that veterinarians are going to read. Um, so uh, hopefully in the future we can kind of um, go about some ways of getting the information out to more of the kind of veterinary and uh and uh, kind of snake collector crowd so that it becomes much more common knowledge within the communities that would actually be seeing this so that it can be missed less in the future. And okay. I, I can touch on that a little bit. Um, I, uh, I'm going to be doing a nidovirus talk at the um, what's called the ABVP conference, which is the Association of Veterinary, Veterinarians and – or no – Boarded practitioner veterinarians. Sorry, um, trying to get the all you, all that you, all you the veterinarians and your acronyms. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. I, it's um, it's one of the conferences for all kind of the um, kind of the the boarded specialists in they're either you know production animal or uh, uh, feline uh, canine or uh, you know reptile uh, birds, uh, exotic small mammals and stuff like that. So that will be. You know, the more that we talk about it and the more that we get kind of this discussion going, I think the better we'll be doing with testing and being able to kind of do treatments and kind of work around with, with what we're, we're dealing with. Because it, it does seem to be very, you know, very prevalent in the hobby. And, you know, if we can kind of just get an idea of, of 
how to deal with it, I think, is is very important. So I'm, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I've kind of become the spokes model on the uh, talking about nidovirus, and, and it's kind of <laughs> been. Um, but uh, but I'm definitely trying to get it out into the veterinary community as well as the private community, just just to kind of get people more um, kind of aware of it because it is such a new virus and it does seem to be affecting so many animals. When you say yeah. it's a new virus, you mean that it's new to science? Because hasn't it? Well, it's been around forever, yeah. Right? <laughs> or no? Well, it's, uh, it's been newly, or I guess Lauren and Mark can kind of talk about it, but it's it's been newly discovered where we can actually gotcha. test for it. So it's not necessarily gotcha. the virus was all of a sudden <clears throat> popped up in 2014. It just, you know, put <laughs> right. itself onto the map. It was, you know, it has been here. We've just been able to get testing to figure out what it is. Because there was some yeah, thought I'll, that this – oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, it's just definitely been around forever. I would say, based on the genetic information we have, I would say millions of years. Fire, this Python nidoviruses and related viruses have been infecting various kinds of animals. So these these guys have been around forever, and it's just, just – yeah, it's just recently that we discovered them and knew about – learned about them that way. Okay. Gotcha. Well, now you say that it's been infecting other animals, and I know in the paper they talked about bovine as well as shingleback nidovirus. Is there any way that we think maybe, or have there been any advancements with those uh, types of virus that could kind of move over to the python, or is it going to be better to start straight from scratch? I think it's better. The the python viruses are actually, there's a lot more papers about those viruses than there are about the shingleback lizard nidovirus and the, the, the bovine nidovirus, which are the most closely related other viruses. They, mm. those, those other two viruses actually only have a single paper each on them um, kind of describing their initial discovery. And whereas the Python nidoviruses, there's maybe a handful or half a dozen papers now on those. Okay. Very cool. So uh, I, we do have, a question from uh, one of the uh, listeners uh, and it's kind of very long. Apparently uh, they had contacted their vet um, about doing night uh testing uh, and said that they were going to work with them through uh, doing the testing at the university of Florida. Uh, apparently they were saying that the price was somewhere up about 200 plus uh, per snake uh, with the vet visit being uh, $40 they wanted to know if you would suggest to wait until the tests have become more readily available. I know Pia was just saying that they were going to have something uh, soon or hopefully soon, uh, or if they should just start uh, testing in small groups or maybe get, uh, which ones would you recommend trying to get tested first? Like who's the ones you definitely want to do first? I guess I can kind of chime in on that. Um mm-hmm. Obviously, I will always say if there's an animal showing any clinical signs whatsoever, take it to the veterinarian as soon as possible. Um, And then obviously if the veterinarian, you know, they can decide what the treatment plan is going to be. And um, currently there is only a couple of labs that are testing for nidovirus, um, the University of Florida being one of them. And they are by far, they're an amazing absolutely amazing uh, lab. I obviously am a little partial to them, but um, but the testing that they do is um, they do full sequencing on all the viruses. So that's why it's a little bit more expensive, I think, than some of the other testing that you can do. Um, 
but I mean, it's all up to the keeper themselves on what they, wh how and what they want to test. I guess it's kind of there are so many different factors of you know how many animals do you have? Are you selling animals on a consistent basis? Are you bringing in animals on a consistent basis? Mm -hmm. That I think answering that question would be very difficult, kind of on the air. But I think the things you need to think about, in, and this is kind of what we have, is, you know, we bring in animals, um, we test animals. I mean, that it's important for us. Um, I mean, and fortunately, we have a very a good um, relationship with Mark and Laura that we can be sending stuff to them. But um, I had to send stuff to UF and stuff initially before we had um, Mark and Laura working with us. Um, mm -hmm. But we were dealing with an outbreak situation, so to me, spending $200 on a on a test was, you know, that was important to us. Um, but, you know, if they have a small collection and they don't have any clinical animals, you know, it would be up to them whether they wanted to test or not. Um, but, I mean, that being said, it's, you know, it kind of, there's, there's so many different factors, and um, I think you kind of have to deal with... Uh, each case by kind of a case by case basis on what what would work the best. Right. So, and obviously shipping is done via overnight dry ice, straight to where it's got to go, and it's tested immediately. So, uh, uh, I imagine that's something that has to be done that way too. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it depends on whichever lab you send to. Um, each lab usually has their own protocols of how they want things sent. Um, and so if you're working with University of Florida, they'll have their own way. If you're working with um, the Research Associates Lab, they'll have their own way. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, getting the sample and keeping the sample either in the fridge or frozen uh, would probably be the best way to kind of maintain the sample. And you kind of have to do some sort of, you know, planning on, you know, when you're going to test, when you're going to ship, so you know that you're not sending things on a Thursday before, you know, a holiday weekend where mm -hmm. the, the sample is going to sit in, you know, the hub for three days in, you know, hot weather or cold weather. I mean, I guess cold weather's not too bad, but, you know, sit out too long or things like that. So those are definitely things you have to think about if you are going to be submitting testing. Right. So I, I that, and, go, go ahead. Oh, and I was going to say, and then also knowing, you know, how to how to properly collect those samples, like like we've talked about in the past. You know, I've seen people saying that they uh, they swab the outside of the nares and the eyes of the animals, which I don't think you're collecting a a valid sample there when you're doing okay. it like that. So so. Uh, you know, make make sure that you're getting the right information on on testing on and then um, you know how you're storing that sample immediately. Because I mean, if I guess if you're looking for a for a negative sample, then yeah, go go swab those eyeballs and <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, if you want an accurate sample, um, you know that uh, that Coena swab is uh, at least uh, in, in our experience is what's the uh the most uh yield you the most accurate results there so okay so uh i guess the last question we'd have for all of you guys tonight um would be what what does the future look like uh with this virus and is there any kind of hope with uh maybe finding a way to fight to, to battle it back and uh kind of return to i guess a little bit more of a normal uh, reptile hobby. Um, I'll, I'll, Whatever that was like. I'll start off. <laughs> I'll, I'll start off real quick by yeah. by um, 
you know, saying that, um, you know, I think it's going to be in, in the, in collections regardless, you know, like, like mm-hmm. Mark was saying, this has been around for millions of years. Um, uh, there are constantly uh, imports being brought in, whether they're wild or from, you know, captive born in other countries, exposed to various different conditions and collections and so on and so forth. Um, so really it's up to the discretion of the individual uh, keeper and facility to uh, do their own due diligence with testing and weeding out those positive animals and maybe doing something similar to what we're doing where um, you're separating the positive animals and you don't have to use it. You know, clearly we, we got negative animals from, from breeding two positive adults. So uh, you're not, you're not out of the project if the animal comes up positive, but is outwardly healthy and what have you, if you manage it effectively um, and you can get to a point in your own collection uh, with your own due diligence to have a completely negative collection um, by by testing and weeding out those animals. Now you can't speak for for other people. Uh, you can't force people to test. You can't can't do that. So um, you know, it, it's all up up to them. So, but you, if you are serious about it and you want to make sure that your animals are clean, um, you can have a clean collection. Um, this virus is here. It's going to be here. I don't think you're going to eliminate the virus. I think, but you could. Uh, you can control it and manage it um, and have um, negative animals and have them completely separate and then eventually get to the point where you're just dealing with um, a a negative clean collection, whether you want to close out your collection and not bring in any new blood or when you do bring in something, just have a very strict uh, quarantine policy on making sure that those animals are for sure negative before they're introduced into your clean collection. And like Mark said, uh, you know, if you're if you're taking samples months apart and they're coming back negative, then you know you could feel pretty confident about adding that animal to your main breeding group. So I think you know that that that's my input on that. Okay, uh, Laura, Mark, from like the clinical side, uh, what do you guys think about what what the future might look for this kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I I agree with Cody in that um, the the virus is probably here to stay. Uh, and at this point, um, management is really kind of the best way that we can take care of um, keeping it either out of your collection or managing it if it's in your collection. Unfortunately, with um, reptile medicine, uh, vaccines are, aren't really a thing, um, and the development of vaccines is... Uh, something that's pretty far away as far as um, on the kind of horizon for this sort of uh, viral agent. But um, right now, I mean, it's really about either keeping it out or quarantine and managing what's already gotten in. Um, And Mark can kind of add to that, but uh, that's kind of the strategy that we're going about with, with the kind of studies that we're doing as well is to try and find out what's the best way to work with this virus since it's already in the entire pet trade, basically. Yeah, and I would say, you know, I just second the fact that, I mean, viruses are tough for, you know, to to develop drugs against. I mean, that's sort of the reason that when you go to the doctor and if you have a a viral cold or your kid has a viral cold, they just say, well, sorry, go home. You'll be better in a few days. Um, You know, unfortunately, that's not always the case with the nidoviruses, but it's, it is reassuring, I think, that some snakes can possibly clear it, and, you know, we sort of have 
preliminary hints of that being a possibility. And I think with good husbandry, you know, you probably have a good chance of improving that with proper quarantine measures and testing and the due diligence that, you know, Cody was describing. Um, I think these are all positive steps that people can take to protect themselves. Um, you know, I think Laura's ongoing research as part of her PhD is, is encouraging and will help define, you know, the, the, you know, more precisely the range of snakes that are susceptible to infection and disease. I think that'll be useful information in terms of planning collections and designing collections and thinking about snakes you may or may not want to introduce to a collection. Um, and hopefully, you know, all of this information together will sort of, you know, slowly but continually improve the picture. Cool. And uh, hopefully, uh, Pia, do you have uh, any kind of thoughts of what you think the future is going to kind of look like in this standpoint of what we're looking at now, even if it's just for you guys and your collection? Um, no, I mean, I just I think it's important that everybody kind of has an idea of what's going on in their collection. And, mm. um, you know, I, I'll get on my soapbox, and I think necropsies are extremely valuable, and they're only, you know, depending on where you go, it's only a couple hundred dollars, and that can tell you a lot of, things, you know, that you may not find out on a live snake that you just take to the veterinarian for, you know, some just, you know, wellness exam or if, there, if there's something going on, um, but also just knowing what is in your collection. So, like, with Cody and I, we we know all of our pythons. We know, um, you know, at least probably half of our venomous, um, if not more, of, of what we have, you know, in our collection. And if we have, you know, if we get any kind of weird, you know, necropsy if there's anything like that then we we work it up we try to figure it out um you know and it may not be the best thing because you might find nidovirus but at the same time at least you'll know that you have nidovirus and you'll know how you can manage it and it's better than just sticking your head in the sand and just hoping for for all you know sunshines and unicorns and not knowing hmm. what's going on <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that 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 probably is the better course with that one uh but anyways um Thank you, everybody, for coming on and talking with us uh, about this one. Uh, if anybody has anything they want to throw out there, if, uh, Cody, Pia, if you guys want to throw out uh, your company, contact info, anything like that, uh, please go ahead, chuck it out there right now. And for everybody who's listening, if they want to talk venomous or if they want to chew your ear about, uh, I guess, some of the other stuff you guys are working on. Awesome, man. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, you could um, check out our website, www.terrestrialandarboreal.com. I know it's a mouthful, but most people in the reptile industry know both terrestrial and arboreal. So if you don't know how to spell it, you can Google it and spell check will get you pretty close. But uh, um, And uh, we, we have a business Facebook page, uh, you know, terrestrial and arboreal. Um, you could you could find us under uh, our, our normal Facebook pages, uh, Cody uh, Bartolini and Pia Bartolini, um, and that could take you there too. We have so many different things that we're working with. It's you know it's hard to cover. The website doesn't have everything, but um, you know our, our contact numbers are available, um, so it's easy to get a hold of us. Um, you know if you want to talk to me about anything, you know husbandry and and breeding and what we're working with or things you might be interested in. Uh, don't hesitate to, uh, to shoot me a message. Uh, Night of RSP has been awesome about um, answering to the satisfaction of um, yeah, everybody's questions. I, I started for a little bit, but then, um, you know, some of it's just overbearing and the, just the reputation, uh, the repetition of people's um, questions. Um, 
you know, can, can leave your head spinning. So P has been really, um, really good about that. So, um, and, 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 and doesn't seem to, you know, I'm, I'm Italian and Irish, so I get kind of irritated pretty quick where she's Swedish and, and, and calm and, and neutral. So, um, that, that's usually uh, pretty good there. Um, and from what we've seen, Venomous, um, uh, haven't, haven't had any, uh, nidovirus. So, any of the people that are working living in states where you can have some of this stuff, maybe it's time to start uh, up in that husbandry game and getting a little bit more technical with stuff and, and, and keeping some of these other critters and uh, you know, a lot of these tree vipers and stuff are not a, not a, a far shot from a green tree Python. I know a lot of green tree Python and, and emerald tree boa keepers are not a big fan of, of getting bit by their snakes. So they use uh, hmm. hooks to handle them. And I always said, if green tree pythons were venomous, we'd be in trouble because they, they're a lot more, they're a lot stronger and, and and a lot more agile than some of these little tree vipers. If you could, if you could work a chondro or an emerald, you can definitely, yeah, keep an eyelash viper safely. And and it's not like a mamba, like these two mambas that we've got breeding. Westerns are probably the, I don't know how black mambas got the title of the fastest snake in the world because the the things that Western mambas are capable of doing, uh, I mean literally every single time I work with them, it's, it's a pretty close call and that's being on your a game. And these things can go from zero to in your face in a split second. And, uh, you know, where the tree vipers don't do that. So, um, you know, maybe don't, don't start with a mamba, but you know, there's a lot of other stuff that, uh, is super interesting and they're small and they can be kept in naturalistic live setups with live plants and everything and are very fascinating. So, you know, um, uh, a lot of venomous keepers and stuff have big egos and try to act all tough and they're like the only ones that are able to do this and we're not like that so people that have never owned some of these things we're happy to if, you know if you have common sense and a good head on your shoulders you got to start somewhere and, and there are better species to start with than than others so we're happy to help and you know as long as it's legal for you to have them because um, every state has different regulations and stuff and counties and all that and that's that's frustrating all on its own um, but, uh, but yeah, so we're happy to help, happy to answer questions and, um, I will digress there. Awesome. Pia, do you want to throw anything out there too? Um, I mean, Cody pretty much covered most of it, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy to answer any NIDA questions or kind of veterinary questions, but, um, but I, I'm not a veterinarian. I didn't stay at the Holiday Inn Express last night, but if you <laughs> have any questions veterinary wise, I can, I can definitely help out. And, you know, and if I don't know the answer, I'm, I'm usually can find somebody who, who, who can answer the questions. So. Awesome. Um, uh, Laura, is, is there anything you wanted to throw out there? Is there any way that uh, people can, kind of either get in contact with you or the questions or if you feel like you can point them in a different direction to something else or? Um, yeah. So uh, the Stengline lab has a um, website and we actually okay. just posted um, a nidovirus like frequently asked questions and um, posted a link to the paper as well as all of the other papers that have kind of come out recently for nidovirus. Mm-hmm. Um, so if people have questions, uh, there's also our contact information on that website. So um, if if anybody's interested in getting a hold of us, asking us more questions, um, either donating to our research or finding out more about our research, all of that's available on the website. And that's S-T-E-N-G-L-E-I-N-Lab.org. Awesome. Uh, that, that, that's, that's good. I was, I was hoping you guys were going to throw something out about the uh, donation and the research stuff. That is great. Mark, did you have anything you wanted to throw up on there either? 
Nope. I just, you know, come check out our, um, our website. If you want to learn more, we also have uh, information there about other research that people may be interested in, um, in this community, uh, on the, particularly on IBD and arenaviruses, um, which is also something that is sort of, I think some people are learning about, um, you know, uh, or beginning to learn about. So there's, mm-hmm. there's more information and papers there. Um, and we have, like Laura said, we have this new FAQ page up that goes through a lot of the stuff that we talked about tonight. Um, and so check that out, I guess, you know, finally awesome. it's been, you know, great to work with Pia and Cody and um, thanks for having us on the podcast. Thank you. And yeah, uh, thank, thank you. you guys for uh, definitely coming out and discuss it. I know it's a, it's a topic that a lot of people don't even want to kind of touch on right now, especially with mm-hmm. uh, Pia and Cody having to kind of, keep having to rehash all the stuff they had to go through. But again, thank you to all four of you for coming out here and kind of just uh, letting the uh, listeners here get something for it. And I'm sure we're going to get just kind of buried under emails and questions. So who knows, we may end up having to do a round two at some point. So, um, well, 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 awesome. And and, and I I also want to just say a very special thanks to to Mark and Laura, because with with really mm -hmm. without them, we wouldn't be where we're at with, with this, you know, every, the kind of stars aligned in a, in a real funny way with this, with this whole thing. But, um, you know, just, just how it happened and the ability for them to do the testing and, and, and Laura doing uh, her research and, and everything uh, really was able to shed a lot of light on this to where, you know, we, we are very active in the reptile industry um, and have been able to, uh, share what we've learned, uh, both bad and good, uh, to, to help, um, you know, future generations of, of herpetologists and keepers and everything where, um, you know, if, if the, the timing, you know, didn't happen the way that it, it did with everything, uh, we may not be in this situation talking right now um, and um, really kind of um, um, distilling um, all the knowledge and experience that, um, and wisdom that was, was gained during this whole thing. So, uh, really, it was uh, it, it's just awesome. So, without without those guys um, and and the research that they're doing, because I mean, we had a lot of animals. You know, like people are talking about uh, tests that are a couple hundred dollars a pop for an animal that you know wasn't feasible for us with you know, forty animals, you know, fifty animals or whatever. So, you know, we've got hundreds in the collection if you count venomous, and we're going to be testing every single one of our venomous animals just to uh, give give them even more of a species baseline on this on this thing, too. Um, so it's just, uh, you know, there, there's just so much good wrapped around all this. It doesn't really sound good right now, you know, but it definitely is. Um, you know, so, uh, so really thanks to, to Mark and Laura. Awesome. Yeah, and I, I second yep. that. I mean, they've been amazing. One other thing I was going to mention is Cody and I will be at the uh, Southeastern Carpet Fest um, on, what is it, February 10th. So if anybody has yep. questions that they want to talk to us about, um, we're happy to talk about Nidavirus or anything else as well. So um, just come find us when we're there. So, And you can awesome. also funnel any of those, <laughs> any questions to me as well, and I'm happy to answer them. That's awesome, and uh, we hope you guys enjoy the Carpet Fest, uh, and uh, hopefully there'll be more of those Southeast ones. Um, but anyway, we won't keep you guys on for any longer. we got to close out the show, but uh, once again, thank you all for you for coming on, and uh, we'll hopefully talk to you soon, okay? 
Awesome, Thank guys. you so much. Great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Very good, very good. Cool. All right. So everyone who's out there still listening. Yeah. What happened, Owen? <laughs> you just kind of fell off. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't go nuts. Do what you gotta do. Make your decisions. It'll be okay. So that's I feel I felt I was like we needed to throw that out there. So you know I, what what is he saying? Oh my goodness. Well I'm worried that like one of our listeners is on like a bridge right now. So, you know, that's uh it's you know, this 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 is obviously something that people care a lot about. Going in and out. It's that high end uh, microphone that you got going on. Oh I lost I, you again. You lost me again? Stop losing yeah. me. Stop moving. So okay. It's one of those things that we talk about people losing their entire collection and we always Mm -hmm. talk about it being like devastating. So obviously this is just as terrifying, but you know. Yeah. Um, We kind of talked about it before the show, but I think at this point, we don't need to go um, into you and me, but you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you just, at this point, you just kind of assume you have it. <laughs> you yeah, know? well, yeah. yeah. It, at this point, it's everywhere, and it's been everywhere. So, and obviously, each keeper out there should weigh all of the things and do what they're going to do, and uh, I think you know, be prepared I, for I it. Th- yeah, I think the biggest takeaway that I took from any of this is just making sure mm-hmm. number one that my quarantine is on point. Yes. Um. Because uh, admittedly, um, you know, there have been times where I, I did not follow that 100%. Uh, I'm sure yes. if everybody was honest, they would probably yeah. say the same thing. <laughs> um, you know, you get an animal from somebody that you know or you trust or you feel like, oh, yeah, I've seen their collection or whatever. And you're kind of just, you know, you don't really take those precautions. Um and I guess going forward, that really should be, you know, without a doubt, a hundred percent. Yeah. All the time. So, and then the other thing it's really made me do is look at, uh, you know, cleaning and just paying attention to things like, um, you know, uh, wearing gloves, uh, you know, mm-hmm. making sure that you're not touching the inside of the water bowl. So for me, I, I'll just throw out this tip and this will be my tip. I use those 16 ounce uh, deli cups. So mm-hmm. I don't wash water bowls, so there's no chance of me uh, mixing up water bowls where one water bowl was for one snake and one water bowl was for another snake. Um, I actually did it just for the ease of doing it, you know, just for making it easy for me. But <laughs> it turned out to be awesome, out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it actually works out, uh, you know, good uh, in, as, in as far as, you know, not doing any kind of cross-contamination. But – right. You know, you could be following that rule and, you know, you got your hands all up in the water bowl, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like in the dish and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I guess from working with food, uh, you kind of understand how easy it can be to uh, cross-contaminate uh, things yeah. if you're not paying attention. So a lot yeah. of the, a lot of the um, uh, protocols that we use in a kitchen, uh, I kind of just apply to uh, working in my snake room, so... Yeah, yeah. Uh, as you're washing your hands, sanitizer, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, um, 
I did also pick up, I should probably put the link in the show notes that I'm going to put over uh, in the blog, but um, I did pick up like, um, they're like uh, real strong, um, uh, like alcohol wipes, like uh, I actually like got Clorox wipes. Yeah, but stronger, like, you know. Ooh, uh, send me that link. I want that. I want. Yeah. That and stuff. basically what yeah. I've been doing is just in between uh, each snake, I'm just wiping the hook down. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's what we used to do at uh, the laboratories is you had to spray down all the tools after you were done using us after you're doing one side of the rack. And then right. you also had to either swap gloves when you finished the rack and you had to spray down your gloves in between sides of the rack. So that was just all that stuff. So that's pretty much what I'm getting back into. It's almost yeah. like you almost have to treat your snake room like a, a BSL three, which is like you have to wear like <laughs> scrubs, gown, mask, yeah. you know, <laughs> I uh, was buddy put in the chat. He's like, when I go to clean my snakes, it's some dude in like a, like a irradiated suit or something like that. I'm like, yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> so <laughs> soon. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Not quite, but almost. Uh, yeah. So if I was um, still working at the lab. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of all you really can do, you know? I mean, yeah. So, uh, I, I do think that there was probably something that's, you know, uh, that we're just finding out about, but has been around. Um, yeah. And just because they did the test and found it now, all of a sudden, you know, we know about it. Whereas mm-hmm. before we were just kind of just, well, yeah, that's, that's what happens. Dead <laughs> Condro. It's like, yeah, no, this is, is this something? Yeah. So, you know, it's, you say quarantine, quarantine, quarantine. I don't care if you got the animal, from your best friend, you got to put it through a quarantine just because it's not because you're worried about the husbandry of your friend. It's just that sometimes your friend might not know what's going on either. So you don't want to have, you don't want to go down together. So quarantine, quarantine, quarantine. Yeah. Very important. Very. Um, Next week. Yeah. So next week uh, (laughs) we are joined by, uh, Riley, uh, who yep. is uh, not a stranger to the show, um, but um, he's going to be talking about his experiences, which, okay, what was that, a month ago? Maybe a month ago. Dude, I've been ago? looking forward to this show since I like, you know, like I pitched it because like, he was just telling us everything that was going on, and I'm like, dude, we should have him on. He can talk about all these horrible things that are going on with him, and like you and I were like, that would be cool. Uh, yeah, it's also horrible what's going on with Riley right now, but it's like, yeah, we had to calm down a little bit but um <laughs> yeah i think it's gonna be a good show so for those who don't know riley lives out in california and when those fires were going on uh he was basically had to evacuate his collection uh kind of in a moment's notice numerous and, times uh, <laughs> yeah it was it was a few times and um <laughs> he took uh he took some notes and he took some pictures and uh you know he's gonna come on and share share with us because I, again, if I'm being honest, I don't know if I necessarily mm. have that protocol in place. Like, I guess because <laughs> I would never think that there would be like a you know fires like that in Pennsylvania. But I guess anything well, is possible. Maybe you know, not or, fires, but something. I mean, are you going to send Dory and the dogs? 
Yeah, you're going to send Dory and the dogs away, and you and the snakes are just going to huddle in and hold tight? <laughs> I mean, like... <laughs> yeah. It's a man on a roof with a bunch of snakes. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> well, Eric's never going to get rescued like that. So, yeah, I no. mean, you know... <laughs> yeah. But, like, it's something to think about. And we... and and You're exactly correct. I never think about this. You know, mm-hmm. uh, what, what if something does happen? Even if it's something not naturalistic disaster maybe something that we have to leave for or have to evacuate for it and short of throwing them all in pillowcases and sticking them in a duffel bag that's all i got so um, yeah part and that's not well, good yeah part of my um part of my thought uh with the adding on to the addition of my snake room is going to be mm. um generator um I haven't really yep. researched them all too much, but uh, that is something that definitely could hit us because, you know, what if, God forbid, there's an ice storm, the power's out for days, you know. Yeah. That could be death to the collection. Well, you know. <laughs> actually, thinking thinking about it right now, uh, Andrew lives, I know, a stone throw away from your house. Right. And his house actually lost power for a couple days back when we had a huge snowstorm to the point where his parents have a generator attached to the house that will just kick on. And, and if anything, it, it'll run the entire house. They have one of those yeah, generators. Right. Like, so it is a very real possibility for you because you know, it happened two blocks away from you. So, yeah. So, you know, just things like that. Um, so hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, you know, through Riley's misfortune, we can all be a little sharper when it comes to, uh, to these That's things. The Luckily, I, I don't think that he didn't lose anything at all, right? He was pretty much... I don't think so. I think actually certain animals yeah. were breeding during this whole, like, freaking hella blue. So, for all we know, he's going to have, like, fire eggs at some point. So, you know, yeah. it's whatever. So, yeah. I, but I, I can't imagine that certain animals, uh, maybe they skipped a meal or two or some were pissed off at him, but, you know, uh, and that's that's probably because he did everything correctly you know shoving them all in a duffel bag would probably result in lots of bad stuff so yeah yeah so yeah we're going to be talking to him about that um i do want to send out a uh happy birthday to two people uh tony jerome and paul Paul harris uh yes (laughs) their birthday is today so um happy birthday uh two great guys uh okay so let's wrap it up uh, Morelli Python Radio, our website, MoreliPythonRadio.com. Uh, email is info at Morelli Python Radio. Um, if you wanted to check out any of the links that we talked about during the show, the paper, uh, that website uh, that um, Mark and, and uh, Laura talked about was, um, what was it? Stein Glenn Labs, all in yeah. the. Uh, uh, show notes. I got it ready to go. There's also a link to uh, Mike Curtin from Scattershot Exotics did a uh, nidovirus uh, prevention protocol that he wrote up. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the, you know, you should check that out as well. Uh, also along with that, the Southern Carpest Fest info is all over there. Uh, so you can access that uh, on our website um, under the news section. So I know there were some questions like people weren't sure where to get it, uh, you know, but just go to our website, go to the news page. And then at the top, you'll see blog, just click on that. It'll take you right to it. So 
that's that. Um, and as far as myself, ebmorelia.com. Uh, my email is eric at ebmorelia. Um, I have started two things that I just wanted to throw out there. One is the blog. I'm doing a weekly blog, uh, which is going pretty cool. I'm just like, you know, my random uh, notes and stuff on carpets. I'm just trying to get it up. What the hell are you laughing at? You laughing nothing, nothing. At no, I'm not, I'm not laughing at you or the blog. I'm not. Or the YouTube page, which just, I don't know. <laughs> I feel really confident now. No, no, no. Kind of. Well, I know. Um, I was, I'm just I'm just sitting here and I'm like, I watched that one YouTube. I'm like, I haven't watched any of his other ones. I'm a bad well, person. I've only, like, <laughs> I've only done two so far. All right. Well, no, but your YouTube page had a bunch of other stuff. I don't know if you've just been throwing up videos or shit, but, you know. Oh, uh, yeah, that was from a long time ago. I don't okay. know. Okay. I don't have any oh, new ones, but you looked like you filled the thing. So, yeah, I was just like, God, he's going crazy. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's from years ago and stuff. I mean, gotcha. yeah, that's that's a lot of stuff. So, yeah, I'm trying to do a video a week, and this week is going to be a little delayed uh, because mm. I'm taking a visit. I'm taking a visit to Rogue oh, Reptiles, God. and uh, <laughs> I'm going to check out some of the cool stuff that, uh, that Mr. McIntyre has uh, going on. That's over unfortunate. <laughs> I thought that would be cool. Um, you know, I, I'm just getting used to this whole YouTube thing and trying to, yeah. you know, it's fun. I, I'm, I'm a creator at heart, you know, musician in me, all that kind of stuff, drawing all that. So I like the, the creation of things. So, um, yeah. So Saturday, I, me and Matt are heading yeah. up and then maybe at one point I'll head over to Matt's place and we'll show you some short tail stuff. So obviously we're going to be focused on, uh, Owen's crazy colubrid editions and he's got Damn some right. he's got some crazy stuff that it's been a while since I've been at your spot. Yeah, so, yeah. You uh, uh, you haven't even seen the blue beauties and they're like four feet long now. It's like they're yeah. <laughs> they they went from like tiny little things to Jesus fucking Christ. So yeah. yeah. And we got the the red tail greens, I got the hogs, I got all the other colubrids, my pine snakes. Uh yeah, yeah, I'm kinda going a little crazy here. But uh yeah, we'll definitely have you up. I, I, I can't wait for the first shot of the video is like you walking up in zero, just like taking you out. Like if that's like the first <laughs> like introduction. Yeah. It's just zero, just knocking you sideways. So like that, that'd be hilarious. But anyway, uh, I, I yeah, got to get a shot of you just like popping out of the corner like you do in all the shots. Yeah. <laughs> just randomly. Like, the Tinley Park things where it's just like, look at yeah. this thing. What the hell? It's like, yeah, where did this guy come from? That's a new so, thing now. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. We'll do that. Um, so, but no, I'm looking yeah, we'll forward to you guys coming up. Yeah, it should be cool. So uh, so that YouTube video will be a little bit delayed for a week, but uh, I promise you it will be worth it. And uh, the blog, I usually do the blog every Saturday. So, again, you mm -hmm. can get that on my website. And that usually posts over to my Facebook page as well. But, you know, it's just me talking about, you know, like I did one on the JAG gene and the history and what it's bred into. For some people, it's old hat, but – you know, you know, for some of the new people that are that are coming into it, um, you know, I get questions all the time. So I figured this is a way to sort of just like, you know, put that stuff out there for people. I, I appreciate that. Kind of reflect then we don't have on. to do it. I appreciate that because then we don't have to do a JAG show for like the third time. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> yeah, I like this idea. <laughs> so yeah. Answer yeah, the so questions. It's just, <laughs> just kind of out there. And it's the same thing with the show notes. I mean, you know. 
it's funny. I was listening to an old episode. So I start, you know, I, every once in a while I get the bug where I go back and I listen to the old episodes. And um, I was listening to an episode with Tim Tyndall and we were talking about Inlands. Yeah. And you were talking about bread no, lie. No, I hate it when you, you hey, when you and Rob bring up shit that I don't even remember saying. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is this is, this is classic. So, uh-huh. and I'm surprised Rob hasn't stumbled upon this clip. But um, so Tim is talking about you're talking about how um, hungry your bread lie is, and it's bit you twice, and it bit the yeah. man when you tried to put it yeah. in. Yeah, you know, yeah. You're like, oh my god, this thing is starving. And, you know, I don't know what's wrong with it, but it's just striking at everything. And um, he says in his English accent, he says something like. Uh, you're going to have to feed it rogue style again there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I was cracking the hell up. <laughs> it was so funny. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, it was classic. <laughs> uh, so, Rob, you're going to have to hunt that one down because we need that in the next uh, year. Oh, yeah. You know, we to do that one in the next clip or so. It was good. <sighs> so that's all I got. What do you got? I got it. You can go to rogue-reptiles.com and also look up rogue reptiles on facebook.com. I have a bunch of stuff up for sale, including you could be some of the first people to own rogue reptiles line IJs. They're not actually my line. They're not actually anything, but they're IJs that were produced for the rogue reptile animal. Never thought that was going to happen. Did you? <laughs> Don't you patronize me with clapping. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Anyway, get him before Eric gets here on Saturday because, you know, if he even shows the slightest bit of interest, I'm just making him take him. So um, uh, that's up there. Uh, as far as shows, uh, I, I can deliver to any of the shows in the tri state area. Usually I'm at them anyway. Um, the next show I do have coming up will be in February. That's the Hamburg show. I'll probably be bumming off of Matt Minnetola's table again, and hopefully I will knock him home with a retick this time. So. Uh, that's all I got. That's all we got for you guys tonight. We'll say thank you all for listening, and we're going to catch you everybody back here next week for some more Merlia Python Radio. Good night.